Okay. All right, we're live. Hello, Sonny Smith. How are you? I am great. It has been a long time since uh, we've seen each other. You've been, uh, you left California how long ago? Uh, 2017 is when I enlisted. Okay. So yeah, you've been gone about five, six years. Yep. So it's been a long time. We've, uh, I've known you, you probably the first time I met you, you had to have been 12, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. Nine years yeah. Basketball. <laughs> yeah. You were, you were much younger and, I've seen you grow up. I've seen you become who you are, and it's it's been a pleasure to see you in all facets of your life and see your life's journey. And uh, when I started this podcast, I I wanted to highlight people's life journeys and highlight people who have a, an interesting background and really get people the opportunity to talk to people who they otherwise wouldn't talk to. I have a lot of friends from lots of different areas of life, and uh, and I've noticed that because I have like little, little pockets of friends that otherwise would, would try to avoid each other. I hope I get this as an opportunity to have people kind of learn about each other and maybe see the human inside. And you have a very interesting story. And so I'm glad you're willing to come on and share it. All right. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so how are you doing right now? Um, I don't know. Life is life. Um, trying to navigate life with different regrets that I have and different mental illnesses and so forth. Just trying to live a normal, productive life. Right now, I drive a, a concrete mixer truck. Um, earlier this year, I got my commercial driver's license. And uh, I've just been working a lot and trying to be more active in my, or build a more substantial relationship with God. I see. That's interesting. Um, <clears throat> we all have regrets. <laughs> there's no way to, there's no way is being imperfect people. Anybody who says, sits there and says, nah, I don't have time for regrets. They're just not thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, everybody's got, Everybody's got that a couple of things in their life that they wish would have gone differently. And anyone who says anything different is just not being honest. Yeah. So, so uh, it is okay to have those regrets. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned you dealing with a couple of mental illnesses. We'll talk about that. Let's just go right out the gate and talk about it. Um, you are, would you identify as transgender? Yes, I would, but I'm not transitioning. Okay. Um, transgender to me is a blanket term to anyone who struggles with gender dysphoria, which is the medical diagnosis for being transgender. And so I've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria and can you knock it off? Um, sorry, cat. Um, <laughs> I've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And so therefore I do identify as transgender. Okay. So gender dysphoria could you, I'm guessing you've probably looked into this a lot more than I have. I'm familiar with the term. Can you give us an idea of what gender dysphoria is? Well, dysphoria, to my knowledge, I'm not an English buff. I can't stand English. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, euphoria, uh, dysphoria is the opposite of euphoria. And so euphoria to me means a total blissful and happy and contentual state. Dysphoria is the complete opposite, where your gender is just making your brain go haywire. 
Mm, I see. How long have you been dealing with gender dysphoria? Publicly since I came home from my mission, but in private ever since I can remember. It, there hasn't been a moment where I haven't felt like I should be a girl as best as I can say it. Okay. And when this first, I mean, you know, you're having to look hindsight, you're 28 years old. So I'm guessing you're, you're trying hindsight to look back 20 years. So I understand some of this stuff. Maybe you didn't ask these questions back then, but when, when it first, when you first noticed this, was it, was it a situation where you always knew or always felt that you should have been a girl or did you quite not know? And it kind of, it kind of gradually you formed that later. It started out like, um, like say for instance, one of my earliest memories was me when um, we were getting, my mom and I was trying to scramble to try to get us ready for church. And, uh, um, I just instinctively put on a skirt when I put on one of my sister's skirts, just like not thinking anything about it. I think I was like, I don't know, like three or four at the time. And, um, I thought that's what I was supposed to wear to church. Um, turns out I was wrong apparently. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, it just kind of grew from there. I noticed things, um, like say in, um, elementary school, I noticed that hey, I really have no desire to be playing in the dirt right now. I'd rather be doing what the girls are doing right now, playing with Barbies and so forth. Um, growing up, um, I really tried to hide it because I didn't know anything about it. Um, and then when, you know, you get to the age of like, you know, you get into middle school or uh, in, uh, in church, you get into something called young men's, young women's, right? Um, I really started noticing then a lot, like, hey, I really have no desire to working on merit badges right now. I mean, I've always wanted to try sewing. Let's go do that. Or, uh, um, yeah, I really lost myself in my adolescence as a uh, in sports. I just avoided everything altogether by playing as much sports as I possibly could. Mm. And, uh that was the best way I can to avoid it. Sorry, my cat is very interested in this discussion. <laughs> That's okay. That's interesting. So <clears throat> when you say you lost yourself in sports, was it a situation, and, and just for people who understand, who maybe aren't members of the Mormon church, uh, when you turn 12, the boys and the girls are kind of separated for a time. Not all the time, but there's a program, Young Men's and Young Women's, where the young men go together and they do certain things and the young women do things as well. And there are traditional gender roles usually in the activities that are going on. And sometimes those activities are combined and things like that, but there are often, you know, the boys will go play capture the flag or go play some sort of sport. The women will go and, or the girls will go and do something else, you know, and sometimes it's not even, it doesn't have anything to do with traditional gender roles. They're doing just different things, but they're separated. And so you're saying at that point you you kind of left yourself in uh, you lost yourself in sports. Did you feel like you were compensating, or what was that all about? Whenever I was playing sports, I never noticed dysphoria. Either that, or I was too tired. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no. Um, my mom always had me playing sports. Always. I mean, a lot of times when I was in middle school, I would get picked up from the school. 
I would go to two hours of baseball practice and then two hours of swim practice. And then I would get home at nine o'clock at night or, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night and try to do as much homework as I possibly could and then fall asleep. And with that kind of schedule, I really don't have time to start thinking about differences um, and the differences in the sexes. At least that was my experience. Um, I noticed some things like when I was in middle school and I noticed, hey, I really want to wear a short skirt to t- at school today. Why can't I do that? This is not right. This is what I want to do. Um, but I really never voiced those feelings ever. I never told anyone. Um, I really just kept it to myself. Um, for an you, Go ahead. Did your, you mentioned your mom. Tell me a little bit about your family makeup. Um, uh, my mom and my dad, um, I was born in 1994. Um, my mom and my dad split up. I do believe when I was about six years old, I was either, a, I was either in kindergarten or first grade when they split up. Um, my dad got remarried. Uh, my mom has been single since then. So um, I was, my dad moved out, um, you know where Ion, California is? Mm-hmm. He yeah. moved out to, uh, in between Ion and Jackson, California. And uh, I... Out in the sticks. <laughs> I actually really liked it out there. It was amazing. We're going off topic, but uh, you know, when I was growing up, I would just say, "Hey, Dad, I want, I kind of want to shoot shotguns this week." And it's like, okay, so we just set up a little skeet shooter in our backyard and just shoot shotguns right off of our back porch. And yeah. we're out there, and no one heard us, no one cared. We just let the neighbors know, "Hey, we're going to shoot guns. Don't worry." And once in a while, they would come and join us. So it was just, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So at that time, when your mom and dad split up, you have a sister as well. I do. She's older than me. She is 17 months older than me. Okay. Um, did you spend more time at your mom's or dad's or was it split evenly? I, uh, or, originally like from the ages, like, I don't know, six to 12, I was primarily with my mom and I was with my dad every other weekend to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then, um, when my grades started slipping in middle school because I hated doing homework, um, my dad came in and started taking a more active role. I would spend every other week, um, with my dad. My dad picked me up after work and drive me out to Ion, stay up with me until 10, 11 o'clock doing homework. And then just repeat, uh, he would drive me back and forth, um, to school every day uh, for school, pick me up, drop me off and all the stuff in between. He would drive from Ion to Carmichael every day. He had a construction job in California ah. in, in, in Sacramento. Sorry. Oh. Okay, so he wasn't going super out of his way. No, he wasn't, no. I was going to say, that's impressive. I mean, that's a real, yeah. that's, a, that's a drive. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's about an hour. Uh, my best time I've ever made it was in 30 minutes, but I was doing questionable speeds. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So so um, the reason I asked that is, did, did you ever confide in your mom and let her know that you were feeling this way? Um. That comes later if you want to, if we're going chronologically, but um, I had never told her or uh, anyone until I was trying, I was preparing to go on my mission. Okay. Um, and, we'll, and we'll get there. Yeah. But, but as far as this time frame, you, you didn't tell your mom. Did she ever notice? Cause, cause here's the thing. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a father myself. I have four kids and like, I, I know a lot of people who, <clears throat> who like, it sounds like, you had, I mean, look, you, you enjoy doing shotguns. You're playing sports. Those are generally things that you would expect a boy to do. Yeah. Right? That's, those are boy things. Yeah. Boy things, quote unquote. Yeah. Right. 
So those are masculine things that you like to do. And I know that there are some boys and men out there who do things that are traditionally, you're looking at traditional gender roles that are, you know, feminine. They like sewing. They like cooking. Like I like cooking, right? I like doing these things that are yeah. traditional female things. But that's that's different than what you're dealing with. I mean, you, this is not a situation if you just happen to like female things. You're actually feeling you you feel as though you should be wearing you should be a girl. Right? Right. Like when I noticed that girls started changing and everything like that for puberty and so forth, I was just like, why aren't I changing? This is so weird. I, I should be and I'm not. So you felt like you should be changing like a girl. Yeah, exactly. Got it. OK. Um, <clears throat> at what point? Did you realize, for lack of a better term, that this wasn't the traditional way a boy thought? Probably around middle school, around the same time. Um, a lot of the time I really just, what I'm about to say, you know, I, I wrote it off as, you know, growing up LDS. Like, mm -hmm. I, but when they started talking about you know, in middle school talking about sexual activities and things like that, which is, feels really weird to say middle schoolers talking about sexual activities, but that was what was going on. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, other guys just talking about girls like sex objects and things like that. I was just like, I, that's really where I started noticing, whoa, I'm not the same as everyone else. This is weird. Mm. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, tell me more about that. What do you mean you're not the same? Um, and, and let me just say, like, I think it's a good thing that you did not participate in that type of discussion. I, I remember I played I played basketball in high school and, you know, the, you know, there was a lot of talk when Donald Trump got elected about locker room talk is what they would call it. And, and uh, it doesn't it certainly doesn't condone anything that anyone Donald Trump or otherwise said. But that is a very real thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, you played sports, so you know what I'm talking about. And that sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah, no, a lot of the times when guys would start talking like that, I would just ignore them. I would smile and just, I would never correct them, obviously, because I didn't have enough self-confidence at the time to say, hey, that's very disrespectful. But, uh, you know, I just, I smiled and I laughed whenever I, whenever I thought something was funny just to try to get by it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, did you, did you... Um... Did you attribute that to this feeling of dysphoria at that point? Or were you just like, I'm just not like these guys? I felt like I was, I didn't contribute to dysphoria at the time. No, but I just really felt like I wasn't one of those guys that are just, yeah. Yeah. Now at this time, as you're changing, you know, that's around the time when sexuality become, you become more aware of your sexuality. Yeah. Um, at the time, tell me about that. I mean, you're going through, male puberty right yeah. so what how did that go for you did you were you into girls were you into were you into boys did that have anything to do uh with your with your gender dysphoria i because of the lds's church church's policy on no dating till you're 16 mm -hmm. um my mom up that um in i couldn't date until i you know got my Eagle Scout and was 16, but she actually wound up luckily not holding me to that. Um, <laughs> um, I never really noticed girls as an option. Um, I didn't really start noticing girls until high school. Um, I was just really envious of them being able to live the life that I wanted to live. 
I see. Okay. And what was it that you wanted to, what did you want to do that you felt girls could do? Um, obviously we've already talked about dress, um, be close to each other. Cause I never, ha I, I still really have never had a close relationship with a male before, not just like as a bro, you know, I've never had that kind of relationship with any guy. Um, and so just girls just being able to be close to each other, being able to cry with each other, um, be emotionally there for each other, um, put each other down, not nearly as much as guys do, but, you know, joshing around and things like that. Um, hey, Josh, huh? Um, <laughs> um, things like that. I would, uh, I just noticed things that the, the subtle differences in the sexes and I always just felt weird that I couldn't, or I, I couldn't do any of the things that girls would do. Mm. And, and <clears throat> so those things like the emotional closeness, um, and, and I can tell you that's a very real thing. I mean, growing up when you were, when I was in seventh, eighth grade, like, yeah, my friends were not crying with each other. They were not hugging each other. They were not putting their arm around each other. They were just capping on each other constantly. Absolutely. You know? And um, that was just the way we all were and, and putting each other down and making fun of each other. And, and um, so it is a definitely a different relationship. Um, but uh, uh, that longing that you you had, you, you didn't have anybody. Did you, I mean you? Did you? You had friends. I. This is not sound pathetic, but I really didn't have any friends. Um, I was always an outcast, even in the LDS, even in the church. Like um, the group of boys I grew up with, um, I was always the odd man out. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the only time, um, I don't want to say his name, um, because I just, I feel like that'd be violating his privacy, and I don't want to say name names specifically, but um, a certain guy that I grew up with, he was, we went to middle school together, we played baseball together, um, his dad was our coach, um, yeah, uh, all those guys that I grew up with, um, I was always the outcast. I was always the odd man out. I always look at them on Facebook, posting pictures of like hanging out with each other, things I wasn't invited to and things like that. And uh, I noticed those kind of things a lot. Hmm. Um, Why do you think that was? Do you have any idea? It took me a while to learn how to socialize. Um, when I was growing up, I couldn't actually keep a topic. Hmm. Um, they would be talking about, I don't know, Star Wars. And I would go in and just like randomly start talking about swimming. It was, I really didn't know how to socialize and talk to other people. It took me a long time. I wasn't, it wasn't until I was like 13 or 14 until I could really actually have a conversation with someone. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you mentioned at the beginning, uh, multiple, uh, well, you, you said mental illness is plural. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume, I don't know if you're classifying gender dysphoria as a mental illness or if you have other things that you're dealing with. Uh, yeah. It, it, I, this would go either way. And um, I I personally feel like gender dysphoria is a mental illness because it's, I don't know, an illness is anything that's not technically 100% right. And a man wanting to be a woman and a man wanting to be, a woman wanting to be a man isn't 100% right. It's not anatomy wise, it's not right. Mm -hmm. I know there's some argument with regards to like gray matter on the brain and how, you know, gray matter on the brain just really tells you how feminine or masculine you are. That's a crude way of putting it. Um, 
but uh, other mental illnesses, um, uh, anxiety, depression, um, and one that not very many people know is uh, something called borderline personality disorder, mm. BPD. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's really characterized by just extreme emotions. I can go from feeling incredibly happy to incredibly angry to incredibly happy all in the course of about three or four minutes. Um, uh, I am terrified of people leaving me, a fear of abandonment, um, things like that. Um, it's not something I've really ever really spoken about, but yeah. Um, well, you've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder as well. Yeah. Okay. And then also, uh, you, you've suffered with anxiety and depression, which is common with someone who has BPD. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, did now in this same time frame, well, let me ask it this way. When did you, when did you realize that you also were dealing with uh, BPD? I didn't know that until I got out of the army and, uh, I started talking with a therapist and she wanted to have me see a psychiatrist to be diagnosed. And uh, that was within the last two or three years, uh, within the last two years, probably. Okay. How were you diagnosed? Was it like a psych test or something else? Um, it was a very specific type of psych test. I'm not exactly sure what it's called because I, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but um, they had me come in at the time I was living as a woman. And so, you know, I came in wearing women's clothing and uh, yeah, we sat down, we spoke. Um, then she had me come in and answer a few really weird questions of that few. There was like 300 of them, but they're very, very back and forth, very weird questions. Mm. And um, from that, she determined anxiety, depression, gender dysphoria, and BPD. Wow. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> when that was explained to you, did you feel as though things were a little more clear for you or did that cause more distress? It caused more distress at first, um, but I have a really good family friend who explained to me, these diagnoses don't have to define your life. They're there, you know about them, and it's better that you know about them than you live in fear and ignorance the rest of your life. Hmm. So, um, yeah. Okay. So these, um, these borderline personality disorder characteristics, how do they manifest? Is it just out of, is it random or is it in certain situations that they become triggered? So like first and foremost, um, when friends come and go in my life, I take that really hard. You know, you, most guy people are just like, Oh, um, they leave like a, um, a social gathering and so, and they really don't care if they don't see those people again. I mean, say I say that, but I feel like, you know what I mean? Sure. Whereas I like, I'm, I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. And um, even if someone's extremely toxic in my life or whatever, I won't cut them out. Cause I'm so scared of losing that emotional connection with someone. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Do you find that that results in you hanging on to some relationships that maybe weren't healthy for you longer yeah. than you could have? Like, I'm not going to say anything bad about her, but my ex-wife, things like that. Sure, sure. Um, and we'll talk about that too. We'll talk about your marriage. I want to I want to try to stay as chronolo- chronological as possible, but we're bouncing around, but that's okay. So um, back to this time, you're in young men's and young women's as you're dealing with this. Tell me how what you were taught in church affected um 
how you were feeling inside. Um, the very first time I ever thought there, I knew there was going to be a big clash between church and my gender was uh, when in Young Men's, my um, deacons quorum leader ran, uh, read the family proclamation to the world. Mm. Um, I don't know it word for word, but essentially they're part in it that goes um, gender is a, a part of God's plan and it's been predetermined from the pre-mortal life um, and things like that. I, I don't know it off the top of my head and I'm sorry, but at that point I knew that there was going to be some clashes mm -hmm. for sure. Let me, let me explore that with you a little bit because I know how that has been taught in the church since the, proclamation came out and when that came out in the 90s there was not a lot of understanding of gender dysphoria and transgenderism as there is today there's yeah. been a lot of progress in understanding what people are dealing with when they're dealing with these these uh this dysphoria <clears throat> but couldn't that be true even if you're transgender like couldn't gender be an essential characteristic since the pre-mortal life, but also be transgendered people. Yeah. Um, this is my own personal belief. There's no church doctrine backing it up, or at least not to my own knowledge. Um, but I believe that God made me transgender for a reason. It's one of the trials that I need in order to make myself better so I can ultimately become like him. And we're probably going to get into this later on. Um, but yeah, that's, I believe that, um, I personally believe that in the pre-mortal life, I struggled with gender dysphoria back then too. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm going to continue to struggle with it throughout eternity. So yeah, let's, let's talk about that right now. Tell me, tell me more about that. So I don't know. I, I I like to hope that it's not that I just, this is just a plague that I have in this lifetime. I call it a plague. Um, and that's probably a really negative way of thinking about it. But uh, I have to deal with this in this lifetime. And I have to figure out myself, figure out my testimony and all that stuff. And then hopefully when I get into the next life and our the veil is lifted from our brain and we knew who we were before we knew who we are now, that this is going to be a catalyst for me, helping me become more and have more faith in heavenly father, especially as we progress through exaltation to exaltation. So I had a guy on um, a, a while back uh, on this podcast. His name is Patrick Mason and he holds the Leonard Arrington chair at Utah state university uh, who is the chair of Mormon studies, essentially. Interesting. We, we were discussing this stuff uh, pretty pretty well, but he he wrote a book um, called Planted, which is specifically about testimonies, faith crises, how you navigate it. And there, in the first couple of chapters, he talks. He he so eloquently put it, and it was something that I think I always kind of understood, but I hadn't heard it put that well very often. But he talks about free agency and he says in his book, <clears throat> at first we were intelligences. God came to us with this plan to help us increase our agency and increase in, in intelligence by gaining physical bodies. 
and we rejoiced at that and he created us spiritually which increased our free agency and then we came down here and we go through the veil and as we come down here that free agency is filtered through the veil meaning forgetting everything that happened beforehand but also environmental factors that come mm -hmm. along dna right like yeah. i also had a guy named uh tony overbay who's a, a therapist who who deals with faith crises, narcissism, personality disorders. And he was talking about how, um, you know, like him, for example, he talked about how his parent, you know, his, his ancestors were very big into alcohol. There's alcoholism. And so he has some issues. His neurotransmitters don't fire off as well. And so he has ADHD, right? That's something he couldn't help. That's something that comes through his DNA. So that's a filter that affects his free agency. So there's all these different things that affect your ability to make choices. And the beauty of the atonement is that it comes in to help both the things that the mistakes you make, but also those environmental filters. Yeah. I think that's just so interesting. And so this, this gender dysphoria thing that you're dealing with, it's, it's something that, yeah, you, you are going to deal with it. And, but at the same time, uh, you know, you, you have the strength and you have the atonement, you have all these different things to help you navigate that. It's gotta be tough. I, I could not imagine what you, I mean, I've never, I, I don't have gender dysphoria, so I can't even imagine what it's like. And I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. What, why, why do you say that? Like, let me, let me, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I've had another transgendered person on here who's living as a woman, mm -hmm. uh, biologically born a man, but has been living as a woman for quite some time um, and is very happy. Uh, still struggles with things um, just as everybody, but is very happy. Uh, what is it about it that you wouldn't wish on anyone else? Just how... It's kind of hard to summarize. I explain, but I'm gonna do my best. Um, one, you know, one of the most sacred acts that we can do as humans is bring other humans into this world. Mm. Um, I'm not just talking about sex itself, but like how women they grow babies in their womb, their in their womb, and uh, all that. Um, I don't really like having sex as a male the main reason why is because it's just so against who i am i definitely am not that way um i don't know if you're trying to keep this pg so i'm trying to keep it pg <laughs> this is i want to know authentically what you're going through and if you have to use terms that are pg-13 or a little above that go ahead i'm not going to use nc-17 don't worry <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um but in that most sacred of all acts, I hate doing it because I, one, if we were to bring a child, if this is something I struggle with my ex-wife, if we were to bring a child into this world, I would be very jealous of my wife during all the things that she could only do, like grow the baby, um, feed the baby, um, and have that. I don't, I'm not a dad, so I don't, I'm not sure how it feels from dads, but I don't, wouldn't have that mother child bond that mothers have. Um, you know, this is so funny. Sorry to interrupt you, but 
it's so funny to hear this and I appreciate you being so honest and authentic because as someone who has not dealt with gender dysphoria, all of that sounds terrible to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the idea of having to birth a baby and then feed a baby and then like, you know, all that, it just, it was like, ah, oh, I don't know how women do that. You know what yeah. I mean? So, and you're, and you're sitting here and you're saying, that's so beautiful. I want that. And I'm sitting here going, man, I, so I know funny. a lot of women who don't even want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've had, I have four children and I've seen, I've seen their births and it did yeah. not go, it was not an easy process. And I was yeah. just like, I'm glad that's not me. You know what I mean? And yeah. so Jeff, uh, Jeff Foxworthy said it best when he says it looks like a wet St. Bernard trying to come in through the cat door. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that's so interesting to me that that's, that's something that you talk about that, that, that uh, you, that you wouldn't wish on anybody. And, and I think I understand a little bit more. There are just some things that you realize that you are not going to experience that you wish you could. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, having that nurturing bond with their child is just something I, I wish, but I know I couldn't have. Um, don't get me wrong. Like uh, I was really looking forward to teaching my kid how to play sports. I would, I would, or I still might, but um, I doubt it at this point, but um, I was really looking forward to teaching my kid how to like throw a baseball, throw a football, um, how to uh, swim, things like that. Um, work on things, work on wood. I love building. I love building things. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, things like that, things or build things. One of a lot of my most, most cherished, there we go. My most cherished childhood memories is building things with my dad um, out in, uh, I own, we built a barn together. We built two sheds together. Um, every time I needed something like some, like for school or something like that, he's like, all right, I have this project. We're going to go clear some land. Uh, we're going to go do that. And, uh, yeah. Um, I was really looking forward to in, like being, a uh, install work ethic and things like that into my kid. Um, which I, I still might have that opportunity to, I don't know. Um, I'm not avidly looking for it, but that's, I digress. Um, yeah. Well, th this is what's so intriguing to me and interesting to me. And this is just me speaking to me because I, I've part of the, this is, a, I was really excited about this conversation because I felt like I could ask questions that you would be honest about. And I appreciate your honesty so far, but it's so interesting to me how, a lot of what you enjoy is so masculine. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, look, I, I am, I'm, I feel like a very masculine man, but construction, building things, that's just not my gig. I, I did construction. I know you worked for, for Corey Anderson for a while. Oh yeah. I did that for three months and I was like, I'm going to college. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I couldn't, I just, it was not my gig. You know okay. what I, mean? I went, I worked with Corey and clay and, uh, I love them both. Clay's one of my best friends. Love Corey, but man, I couldn't do that. You know what I mean? And yeah. you can, and you like it. You enjoy it. And like building a barn, like you're saying, some of your favorite childhood memories is building a barn and building things and clearing wood and all that. And I'm like, man, if my dad asked me to do that, I would hate every minute of it. So that's so masculine of you. But at the same time, you have these feminine qualities. And that's just so interesting, These 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 feminine qualities that you yearn for. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, it's an interesting thing. 
dealing with uh, transgenderism and, and gender dysphoria. So, so going back to church, you, you started realizing, how old were you when you realized this clash was going to happen? Were you like 13, 14 at that point? I want to say, yeah. Um, I don't think he would mind me saying it, um, but I'm pretty sure it was Brother Tofaletti who oh. actually, um, Roberto. Um, Roberto's a great guy. Amazing guy. Um, yeah. I think he was the very first guy that sat down and read the family proclamation with me and the boys I grew up with. And uh, yeah, that was, it was definitely before I was a teacher. So yeah, um, I was, I was a deacon at the time. So yeah. yeah. Roberto and Wendy are some of my favorite people. I was their home teacher for years. And that was great people. I actually I, looked forward to the monthly visit. I, uh, I still keep in contact with Summer. We're, me and Summer are, cl being, are close to the same age. Yeah. Uh, I'm a few years older than she is. But uh, yeah, um, I don't keep in remarkable contact, but uh, it's just Instagram. We like each other's posts, things like that. Um, sure. sure. Uh, uh, so let me ask this question. Um, cause obviously Roberto did not know at this time and you kept it quiet. So they didn't know you were dealing with gender. Absolutely. So if you, um, if you could recommend in today's world, there might be in a, in a deacon's quorum or in a young woman's group, somebody who's dealing with gender dysphoria or dealing with transgenderism or dealing with any of the LGBTQ issues, what do you feel could have been done differently in teaching the proclamation that uh, could have made you feel a little more comfortable? Back then, well, even now, um, but it, the, the situation isn't approached with compassion. Mm -hmm. It's not approached with understanding. It's just out here, it's more conservative. So you definitely have like a lot more the LGBT or the enemy. So uh, you just yeah, are you mean in North Carolina where you're at? Yeah. Uh, you just need to stay away from them at all costs, especially being so close to Fort Bragg. And you have a whole bunch of people that are in special forces because Fort Bragg is the home of special forces. Um, a bunch of people that in the 82nd Airborne Division, which was what I was a part of, um, higher ups like command sergeant majors, colonels um generals people like that all out here that have retired out here at fort bragg because of the gulf um because southern I, southern pines i live like me i live like i do a lot of construction work other in southern pines but um yeah um with being so conservative it's definitely viewed more as an enemy but in california you're definitely viewed more as an enemy if you're christian and lgbt but if you are in California, regardless, this just needs to be approached with compassion and understanding, saying these people are also children of God, not your enemy. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they need the atonement and they need Jesus in their life as much as anyone else. In fact, if this is a sin, Jesus went to the sinners. Jesus went to anyone who made mistakes. My favorite story in the Bible of all times is John chapter eight, more specifically the woman taken in adultery. Yeah, it's mine too. When this woman who by all accounts in the law should have been stoned, um, and according to the Mosaic law, which they were living at the time, she should have been stoned. But Jesus came in and said, he who is without sin among you, 
let him first cast a stone at her. And I feel like in the church, we're all, we, well, yeah, we are all too quick to cast stones at anything that's remotely different than what's, what the prophets have said and everything like that. It's one of the reasons why I've always appreciated Elder Holland so much because he's willing to say, hey, we need to act like Christians more often. So that needs to be approached more with compassion and understanding and not villainizing it. Sure. Um, So as you're growing older, you get to 16, start dating. Tell me what that was like for you. And both, both in dating and also just, you know, being a priest in the in the Aaronic priesthood as a as a Mormon kid getting prepared for a mission. Tell me what that was like. Um, I had remarkably good young men's leaders. Um, I don't think they'd mind me saying their names, but um, Jared Kobabe, um, oh, another great guy, Love amazing him. guy. Um, your dad was one of my young men's leaders for a while. Um, oh, yeah, he's an okay guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good one too. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you also real quick. Something about my dad. Probably his favorite calling is dealing with the with the young men. He really? he loves that stuff. He he and he's done it all. You know, he had a pretty rough uh, childhood himself, and then um, you know he struggled later in life because of it. And you know his story is pretty remarkable. I'll probably someday podcast it with him too, just to get his own version of the story. But. But yeah, I, I know that he's done it all. He's been on a high council. He's been a high priest group leader. He's been in a bishopric. He's done all that stuff. But he's he's in a, a young men's, uh, he's like a young men's advisor right now. And he just loves every minute of it. That's just his yeah. favorite thing to do. So anyway, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, that was a digression. But um, Brother Walquist. Um, yeah. Um, yeah um, he was you one had, of my. You had, a, you had an all star group. I did. And uh, yeah. Um, about that time, it was Bishop Horst was leaving and Bishop uh, Stolzing was taking over. Yeah. And also, two two very good men. And and Bishop Horst, you know, he's he's dealing with, he has LGBT issues in his family as well. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. So I had a really, really good group of people, uh, people look after, people I still look up to. Um, when I first got married, I always looked to um uh to uh brother walquist as an example because it seemed like he had like an all-star family like everyone else their kids are just running around at church and they're even the baby's just sitting there so passively just like all right we're just yeah anyway i just always love that example that they said uh, that they said um he helped me a lot later on like um getting my eagle and so forth i was a life and i had all the merit badges necessary and it was coming on the summer that i was needing to go and do my Eagle project and did all that stuff done. And I know for a fact, I wouldn't have gotten it without his help. Um, anyway, so yeah, continuing on. Um, so um, yeah, my young men's leaders were great. They really helped. Um, when I was a junior, when I was a senior in high school, I started meeting with, uh, sorry, I started originally talking with uh, Bishop uh, Horst, and uh, he set up the missionary portal since everything was done online at the time um, to send your mission paperwork in. And so, um, yeah, um, I met with him originally. He set up my missionary portal portal and things like that. But he was released like like two or three weeks later. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was gone. And then uh, Bishop Stolzing took over. And um, well, I... You're 18 now, right? This is when you're 18? Yeah, I turned 18 um, 
October of 2013. So, so was that still, did you still have to be 19 to go at that point or was it 18 yet? They had changed it that general conference. They changed it the uh, general conference that I turned 18, I believe. So, okay. so you were right at the transition point. Yeah, I was right at the transition. Um, yeah. Um, I met with him for, I uh, started meeting with Bishop uh, Solsing. Um, he wanted me to work on a few things in terms of maturity, of which I'll give. I was extremely immature at the time, and I don't think I'm mature now. But um, we're, all, we're all working on that, man. I'm oh, yeah, absolutely. I was 42 years old, and I got a bunch of Rocky action figures in my theater, and I got video games everywhere. So don't feel bad about that. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Um, yeah, he had me work on a few things in terms of maturity. And when I finally, um progressed to the point he was comfortable with like moving on we started talking about other things and he felt like i was holding something back that i wasn't telling him something that i was and he's a new bishop you know how new bishops are when they have the vibe and they're they're not trying to do anything from experience they're just trying to do everything from the spirit bishop stolsing was not having any like he was like something was holding him back and uh, i met with him about three times trying to get him to submit the paperwork to um uh, the stake president who at the time was stake president Taylor um, trying to get him to submit the mission paperwork and he just, he wouldn't do it. And so um, with tears in my eyes, I came out to him that I was struggling with gender, which I was really nervous about because back in California at the time, he was like the Northern California representative for proposition eight. Um, yeah. And so, and I knew that going into that meeting and I knew that, you know, if I told him that I probably was never going to go on a mission, that's why I went into that meeting thinking like, okay, I'm not going to go on a mission. Might as well just go tell him and uh, whatever. And uh, he was remarkably compassionate, remarkably understanding. Um, we both cried together in that meeting and uh, it was just a, an incredible experience. Sorry. No, don't, don't apologize. This is the first time you're coming out to anybody. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I think so. Yeah. Wow. I might well, first serious person. Um there is uh not my girlfriend, but a girl who in high school I got very close to. Mm. And uh I think she uh, she was the very first person I actually came out to. Mm. But yeah. And was that a good experience or a bad experience? It was a good experience. Um I kind of knew it would and because I trusted her a lot and I knew that she wouldn't do anything with it, but yeah. So, um, yeah, I got to imagine you're right. Let me tell you, let me just quick digression. I, I was blessed enough to work very closely with Bishop Stolzing. I, I don't know if I was your elders quorum president you're during right. time or not. I was okay. Uh, not during that time. When I came home from my mission, you were, yeah, yeah. So I, when I, I remember you leaving on your mission. I remember you coming back from your mission. So, um, and uh, um, I, I was an elders quorum president under Bishop Stolzing, and I served in his bishopric for a time. And the, I couldn't have learned. He was also actually when I was a youth, he was my home teaching companion. So I have a long history with him. Walquist is my young teaching. It was my home teaching companion too. Yeah. <laughs> And it's so funny when you you're naming these names and I'm looking back and you don't realize when you're in it, but I come back and I go, these guys were 
all all stars. I mean, they yeah. were all just man. No wonder there was there was a lot of success in that area uh, with with people and um, and they all had something to do with it. But one thing I loved about Bishop Stolzing, I'll tell a story about Bishop Stolzing that he shared with me. Somebody when he first became a bishop came into him and shared something, which by I guess bishop standards would have been pretty egregious a sin uh it was it was a couple and they had done something and i served closer with bishop stolzing at the end of his bishopric um and he was sharing the story about how he's like man i um i, I laid into him you know i laid into him hard and uh those people ended up um ended up leaving and and writing me a letter and saying that they're not they're not coming back and he goes, and I look back now, and if I had had, if they had come in and sat in my chair today, I think I would have handled that a lot different than I did then. And it was then, that was the first time I think that I really realized, I was like, man, because I had had a lot of run-ins with bishops and, and, high, and stake presidents in my youth and all these things. And I, I had a, some pent up aggression with some of them. And I was like, First time I realized, I go, these guys are imperfect too. Like in in the church, we we sustain our local leaders, right? It's a question on our temple recommend interviews. Do you sustain your local leaders? Well, yes, of course, we sustain them. We believe that they were called for a reason. But that was the first time I realized these guys are infallible. They do have uh, the spirit with them to make decisions, but that does not mean that they're going to be perfect in making those decisions every time. And they are learning and growing in that bishopric too. And so it's really great to hear that in your situation, I got to imagine, yeah, like you haven't really come out about this and you've got the guy who is, you know, who was the, the representative for the church in Prop 8 in Northern California staring you down and saying, there's something you're not telling me. That had to have been pretty scary. Can you, can you tell me what it was that Bishop Stolzing specifically did that made you feel so loved and, and what was so compassionate? He gave me a hug afterwards. Um, I had this idea um, that I was just going to be ostracized. So they're just like going to throw me to the curb, throw me out the door, uh, tar and feather me, you know. Um, and uh, he gave me a hug afterwards. And then he gave me a blessing. And um, I can't remember any of the words of the blessing. Uh, if you were to hold a gun to my head, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but he um, he met with me every single week after that, up until the point I submitted my mission paperwork. And that was about a year later um, because he wanted me to go see a therapist and uh, things like that. I didn't have to pay for the therapy the church did. It was covered under the family services Um thing but uh yeah um yeah he was uh he was just remarkably kind and i just i wasn't expecting that um not at all um, especially you know i don't i'm gonna name his name so i'm sorry but growing up with his son me and his son were in the same age group and uh I honestly thought when I told him that he's was like, what you around my son and you're transgender. How dare you and just fly off. Um, so I was terrified in that meeting and telling him that, but just how kind and 
yeah great he was about it yeah the thing that's so interesting about that to me is that that's you know we we heard in conference this this idea of hinge points mm -hmm. that there are certain hinge points in our lives and it's so inter interesting to me the thought that came to me was that really was a hinge point for sonny smith it was if that had not gone well your life would be so different right now i would have enlisted in the marine corps and yeah that would have been my plan yeah so yeah and who knows if you would have continued in church i probably wouldn't have yeah so. well okay so you you spend about a year tell me <clears throat> how church members were treating you during that year when you were trying to get out on a mission some of them were very kind and respectful um and, and just so we're clear real quick sorry to interrupt but nobody here other than bishop stolsing knows that what you're dealing with um I came out to a few other people. Um, my Bishop Stolzing requested it. He insisted that I, I told my parents. Mm -hmm. And up to that point, I was keeping it a secret. Um, I lied to Bishop Stolzing, sent on me. I never told my dad. At least I didn't tell him at that point. Um, but I told my mom. And uh, don't think less than my mom when you hear this. Um, but when I told her, she laughed. Mm -hmm. Um just so you know, I've known your mom for a really, really long time, and I really like her a lot. So I don't think any less of her. No, not at all. Um, she laughed um, because I played up being masculine so well that when I told her I have these feminine feelings, she laughed. Mm. Um, that put a big damper on a relationship for the next three or four years. Mm. I didn't really actually forgive her until I enlisted. So When she laughed, did you take that as like, a laughter that she was surprised or what was the laughter? How did you interpret the laughter? As uh, well, as surprised, sure. Um, but also as a, as a way of, I took it at the time in my immature mind thinking that I would not be an attractive woman and things like that. And she was laughing at the mental idea of me being a woman. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so you you come out to your mom, um, sister, and your sister. Okay, but generally, members of the church, they they, they just know that you're not going on. It's taking you a while to get on your mission, and they don't know why. Right? Yeah, no. For a while, there, your dad was telling me, "Hey, Sonny, it's okay. Not every person goes on their mission. It's fine. A lot of great people didn't go on their mission." Yeah, I mean, look at President Monson. President, uh, yeah, pre at the time, President Monson, he didn't go on his mission. He served in World War II. He didn't go on his mission. It's okay. You don't have to go. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there are a few members that were pulling me aside and told me that I need to repent quickly and um, go on a mission. Obviously, they were ignorant, and I took it with a grain of salt. Um, but uh, yeah. Well, that's important, though, you know, because here's the thing, right? Like, I, I've learned this with age comes wisdom, and like, I when i was younger especially when i came off my mission i was pretty harsh to a lot of people you know i had a i had a friend on my mission a close friend <clears throat> who yeah you know made a lot of mistakes and uh on the mission and off the mission i was harsh i was really harsh and 
you know, I regret that. You like to talk about regrets because you don't know what people are going through. Like you have, a, you clearly had a war going on in your mind that nobody knew about, you know, and um, they, they could really, they could really learn from Bishop, your Bishop's example of kindness and care. When somebody doesn't go on a mission for whatever quote unquote sin they're dealing with, right. Or whatever it may be, or, or what's keeping them from going. You don't know what that is. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps a, a little kindness rather than calling them to repentance would be helpful. My dad, on the other hand, you know, it's funny. He, he, that I, I attribute a lot of um, my, my ability to, or my choice to go on a mission and who I was as a missionary and who I am as a member to my dad's kind of, Lacks, I don't want to say lackadaisical, but his view on all this stuff. He he always told me the same thing when I was thinking about going on a mission. He's like, you can go. You don't have to go. It's up to you. Whatever you want to do. You know, he's like, he never pushed it on me. It was never expected of me. It was just, if you want to go, great, we'll support you. If you don't, great, we'll support you. But if you don't go, you got to do something. You got to go to college. You got to work. You got to do something. Right. Yeah. No, he told me I should join the military if I don't go on my mission. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. So, okay. So you're going through this year. Some, some members are encouraging some, not so much. What advice would you give to rank and file members of the church for, uh, on how they handle someone in their ward who may be dealing with trying to get on a mission, but have something holding them back? What would you say? I'm going to say this a lot, but just compassion. Compassion. I, I'll say it a lot. I feel like it's something that the church is so divided into letter of the law. Like this is exactly what it's supposed to be. And if you don't fall in that letter of the law, you're an outcast. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry. I uh, um, I would, that's the only thing I can say is just it, treat it with compassion. It's exactly what Jesus Christ would do. It's exactly what Jesus Christ said. Jesus was only not compassionate to one per uh, to one group of people, and that was the people that were selling the stuff in the bank and that were, were selling up merchandise, selling merchandise in the temple. Right. And uh, that's the only time I can ever recall him not being compassionate. I mean, even when he was being crucified, he was praying for the forgiveness of those people who were crucifying him. Mm -hmm. that, that's why compa compassion is the most important thing. To me, at least. Yeah, no, I agree. This time frame, we, we haven't really talked about this too much, but as you're coming up in the young men's program, preparing to go on a mission and also struggling with transgenderism, um, were you struggling with faith at all during this time? No. Okay. Because um, at that time, I, I don't want to say I was living the gospel, um, but... I was just in the routine of it. Um, when I before I started going to high school, you know, church Monday and Wednesday, it was always a fun activity with a spiritual thought. Um, I so I didn't really care, but going to when I got to high school and started going to seminary every morning, um, I still really didn't question it. Um, don't get me wrong; there are plenty of people that were trying to, especially in like high school. It's it's high school. It's Del Campo High School. It's just like everyone's going to question it. Um, teachers. Um, would specifically discriminate against Mormons 
and things like that. Um, when you went to high school at Del Campo, was there still a Mormon Hill? Yeah, but uh, it was being did away with because Mormon Hill, as I remember, was that big hill with the tree in front of it, yeah. with the tree in the center of it. Because my 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 freshman year it was under construction. They put a big concrete block going around that tree, and um, they did it away with all the grass and they put bark there. And so all the Mormons sat on the bench and on that block uh, on that block on that concrete block that they put around. Yeah. So for people who who don't know what I'm talking about, at our high school, I I went to high school from '95 to '99. So you. You uh, you you were nowhere near Del Campo at that point, but there was a hill in the front, it's still there, um, where all the Mormon kids would eat lunch and hang out, and it was known as Mormon Hill. It sounds like when you got there, it was still kind of there, but was starting to slow. I know it's not there anymore. I mean, it's not considered that anymore. Yeah, no. When I was there, that's where our. I guess, I guess it just passed it down from tradition because then I went there. Um, here's another name that uh, Jeff Harrison was like a junior or senior in high school when I was going there. And I assume that there was like Isaiah Summerhays would also be eating there. And it just like, imagine just got passed down from generation by the time I, uh, by the time I got there um, or the time I left, excuse me, in 2013, it, uh, it was, uh, it, it definitely faded away by then. That's funny. Isaiah Summerhays. I, Josh Summerhays was on there when I was there. I still talked to him. I just actually, just over Christmas, uh, a bunch of us got together, and so Josh Summerhays is one of them. We got together first time in a decade, and and just hung out and caught up, and yeah, that was the the hill we all hung on. So that's that's really cool. So now now this uh, so you you end up going on a mission. Where did you serve? Uh, New York Utica Mission. Okay. Um, Before you had gone on your mission, <clears throat> had you ever taken? the Moroni's promise to pray or to read, ponder and pray about whether the book of Mormon was true. Yeah. I actually, um, I did that way before, um, when I was uh, in primary, um, I remember a Bishop or I think it was a Bishop. I don't know. Some substantial priesthood leader came into the primary and said, you, if you, <laughs> I know this isn't what he said, but the way how I remember him saying it is if you don't read this book, you're going to go to hell. And if you don't believe in this book, you're going to go to hell. Now, I don't know what he actually said, but that's how I remember it coming across. And so I was like thinking, I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to go home and read about the Book of Mormon. And uh, I did it. And it was like maybe seven or eight at the time when I did that. And I do remember feeling the spirit very sweetly and sincere saying, hey, this is this is good. This is, I didn't really understand it at that point. But yeah, mm -hmm. that was. Did, did you feel Did you feel Sorry to interrupt it, uh, but as you're going through high school and going through this time, did you feel like you had a testimony that the church was in fact true? I had the testimony, yes, but also that one verse, um, faith without works is dead. And... Um, and another one, um, it is by Thomas Jefferson. I've shared it on Facebook a lot over the past couple of years, but it says, a question with boldness, even the existence of God, for if there be one, he would rather the homage to reason rather than blindfolded fear. Mm -hmm. And um, I never questioned it. And I don't really think that true faith can come until you actually question what you believe, until you 
hold it to every single kind of refiner's fire there is, any kind of telescope and magnify it and actually look at all the nitty gritty of it. I wouldn't really actually consider myself a true, I know you're not supposed to say this anymore, but I wouldn't have considered myself a true Mormon until I decided to stop taking estrogen earlier this year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And and what, what makes you say that? Cause I didn't, I didn't sacrifice anything for it. I didn't mm -hmm. put aside anything that I wanted to do for it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was me making a sacrifice, me saying, all right, I trust God. And I trust that these group of men up here, Elder Holland, the apostles, my bishop, my, my local bishop and the local stake president and the doctrine contained in this book, I'm putting my faith in that as opposed to modern day medicine. I'm putting my faith more in that as opposed to how I want to look and how I want to spend my life. I'm putting more faith in that. That's why I consider myself, I really didn't consider myself a true Mormon until then. Interesting. So you, do you feel that right now you are denying yourself of those things in order to be closer to God? That's a good question. Um, if we want to stick chronologically, I need to wait on that. I need to wait to answer that. Yeah, yeah we, can, <laughs> we can come back to that. Um, I think a, a better way, and just keep it in your head, is a better way to say that is, is um, do you feel as though you are giving up something that make that would make you feel like you're living your true self as a sacrifice to be following God. Um, but we can think about that a little bit, a little bit more. Let's go back to your mission. How was that experience for you? I think every mission has its laughs, uh, has its amazing, incredible moments, and it has its incredibly depressing moments. Oh, I think, yeah. I haven't met a single missionary that came home and was like, yeah, I baptized every person I met. Um, if so, I probably wouldn't want to meet that person because he'd just be overly cocky and arrogant. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of those. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, but uh, when I um, when I first got to New York, um, one of the very first messages um, emails I sent home was, uh, "There's a reason why the church left upstate New York," uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, it was great. Um, but I. I wholeheartedly believe I was called there to teach one person oh. and uh, his, uh, he's recently passed away within um, the past year or two. His name is Raphael Hughes. Um, he, uh, he was a great guy. He, uh, uh, he, he and his husband raised, he was married to his husband for 20 years and um, he was a, um, a state therapist um, he worked with kids that were removed from their houses and things like that hmm. um, because of violence, abuse, all the above. And uh, he would work with them. And him and his husband did adopt um, around 20 kids from the ages like 14 to 18 and try to give them a, a, a suitable and sustainable place to go to, call, uh, to go to high school and to really start their life. Um, his husband passed away, I do believe, in 2000. And um, 
he'd been meeting with the missionaries ever since then. Hmm. And uh, on and off, on and off. Um, when I first met him, he was a big, burly guy. I mean, not tall, but he was just big. He hmm. was a unit. Um, and uh, um, when I first met him, he had the highest pitch voice I've ever seen. I was just like, this boy's voice does not match this guy's body. Um, he would cuss like a drunken sailor. He um, had a Jewish background, hmm. everything. But um, I was able to relate to him. Me and, uh, me and my my first companion, when I was there with him, they didn't get along at all. Me and Raphael, to my companion at the time, they didn't get along. Raphael, my companion, didn't get along. Uh, but when the second companion came along, which is probably the favorite companion I had on my whole mission, his name is Matthew Mervis. Um, Matthew Mervis and I, we were able to help him a lot. Um, I was able to relate to the LGBT stuff and Mervis knew doctrine like the back of his hand. Um, during our comp, invent, uh, comp studies, we would like read things like the King Follett sermon and things like that. And uh, um, anyway, uh, he would be reading the Old Testament, things like that. He just knew doctrine like the back of his hand. Incredible person right now. He's going to med school. Um, but uh yeah. Um, yeah, no. Um, uh, Area 70 came along. Um, he gave a, a, a talk in General Conference a while back, I think in 2012. Um, but his name is Randall K. Bennett. And uh, he, uh, he came through the mission and he's like, all right, I need a volunteer. Who has an investigator who's not progressing? And I my hand shot it before I was actually, before I thought about it. Like, anyway, so I went up there and I, I role played as Raphael. And um, he gave us a lot of good insights and things like that. And um, anyway, so later on that night, we went back over to his house and the spirit was just so strong. I mean, I've never really chastised someone through the spirit before, but that was the very first time I ever had. And it wasn't, there was no malice in my voice. There was nothing like that. I just said, hey, you know, you've been meeting us for a while. You want to do this. And your husband wants you, your deceased husband wants you to, too. Um, he per he kicked us out after that because that was too much but he invited us back the next day and said look i want to start working towards baptism and so we set a date for him for like three months in the future so he wouldn't be terrified of it and my luck on my mission was i would set a date with someone like that and then i would get transferred like two weeks before they got baptized so <laughs> yeah that was fun um but yeah he was an incredible person and uh he was a great example um i kept in contact with him up until about the year before he passed away because he just stopped talking to people. Mm. Yeah. And he, how did he, how did he die? Was it? Uh, I haven't asked. And I think it's kind of rude to ask his family, like, Hey, how did this, how did your family member die? But I, he was very overweight. And so I think it had to do with like a, a cardio, his, his heart health finally diminished, but I don't uh, for sure. Okay. So, um, you know, I, on that note, you know, sometimes we would have, uh, I remember when I was, I think I told you when we were talking before I hit record, when I served a mission, I was in leadership for the bulk of it. I mean, if you consider when I was a district leader all the way through, I was probably 18 months of my two years, I was in leadership. And I spent about 14 months as a zone leader, which is equivalent, I would say equivalent to like a stake president in, uh, in, in, you know, general terms you're yeah, basically yeah. over an entire region of the mission and you report directly to the mission president and his assistants 
And uh, I often would talk to missionaries about obedience and different things to the mission rules and stuff like that. There was one quote that I remember I shared a number of times with missionaries, and I can't remember who said it, and I'm going to butcher it, but it was something to the effect of, it is true. And before I tell this quote, I'll also say, I remember one specific missionary who he was very disobedient to the mission rules. I mean, like, you know, he would do things that missionaries definitely shouldn't be doing. And he would be talked to many, many times, but he would have success. He would have success baptizing. And he's like, I don't need to be obedient. Look at all the success I'm having. He was one of the, he was very charismatic. So he was able to baptize a lot of, a lot of people. Um, and he's like, well, look at all these baptisms I'm having. Why do I have to be obedient if this is, you know, working out? And I remember this quote saying there, it is true that there are some people out there who it does not matter who the missionary is. They are ready to be, to hear the gospel and they are going to accept it despite who it is. But there are also those people who you are sent to that area specifically to meet them and specifically mm -hmm. to teach them. And you are the only one who could do that. Yeah. I remember when I read that, I was like, uh, you know, I've, I've had a rough and tumble life. I'm, I'm nowhere near perfect, but I can tell you what, I've never been closer than I was on that two-year mission. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I remember reading that and going, boy, you know what? I uh, don't, uh, I do not want to miss somebody. On yeah. this. It sounds like you found the one that you were supposed to see. Yeah. No, um, there was a, uh, um, I'm not sure if you knew him, but he gave, uh, we all left together. There was maybe about 20 of us in our youth group that grew up in the entire state that just left together. And there was about a two year gauge gap between me uh, us and the next guy. But anyway, um, this guy's name is Shane Simmons. When he went up to give his um, farewell talk, he told a story and I don't know the story about it. I don't know who said it first or anything like that. He said um, two guys were sitting together in the pre-mortal world and uh, um, they both got their mission calls to come to earth. And uh, one of them was going to be born in the church and be uh, taught everything and have a super solid testimony. He was going to go on a mission to this place and whatever. And uh, they were both celebrating. And then when his friend got the got his mission called to grow up in a a, a, a bad house without uh, a single parent house, um, uh, drug abused, everything like that, um, they both kind of got shocked. And then the uh, his friend told him uh, his friend uh, turned to him and said, "On your mission, you need to find me. You need to find me." And uh, I do believe mean. Raphael knew each other before, before in the pre-mortal existence. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, did you, uh, I remember you coming home. Um, did you serve the full two years or were you someone who came home a little bit early for some reason? I came home 20 months at 20 months. Okay. And was that a medical reason? Do you want to share or do you want to keep that to yourself? I can talk about it. I, I'm not going to, shy away from it um sure. when i went on my mission i went by the therapist who i went with uh, who i saw with the bishop Solsi made me see told me specifically that if i told anyone that i was transgender on my mission i'd be sent home mm. um even though i broke that rule numerous times um, i told Raphael that i struggle with gender i told a few of my companions that i was close with that i struggle with gender 
none of that really mattered until I met with my uh, mission president and I told him like, Hey, I struggle with this. And at first he was like, okay, we can work through this. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but after a while, um, he, I, it seems like he started looking for an excuse to send me home. Mm-hmm. I told him that at my 18 month mark. Um, and I remember the day perfectly. Um, <laughs> um, I didn't like my companion very much at the time at all. Uh, he's actually from Northern California and, mm-hmm. uh, on paper, it seems like it would have got along great, but, uh, I couldn't stand the guy. <laughs> um, but uh, um, yeah, well, uh, I talked to my mission president in the uh, in, in his car. Um, his wife went into our apartment and like started cleaning it from like top to bottom. And uh, anyway, but uh, yeah. Um, I Yeah, that's when I, it was in February or March of... Gosh, what was it? I want to say 2016 that I sat down with my mission president and I was just like, look, I struggle with gender. I always have. Um, he was a OBGYN from uh, Ogden, Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, St. George. And um, anyway, he immediately told me that there's no science behind it, this, that, and the other. Um, but anyway, we can get through this. It's not the end of the world. You can. I don't see there's. I don't see there being a reason why you can't serve the full twenty four months. You only have six more months to go. And I was just like, well, great, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, no. I, Real quick before you go on, let me ask you this question: What prompted you to tell him? I was struggling so hard in that area. Um, the area was Endicott, New York, and I doubt you know, but IBM. Um was a huge employer they employed over 85 percent of the town they had a a huge factory in the middle of endicott and everything like that and um i am i i'm not sure under what president it was i know that the town didn't like president obama very much and so i think it was him but due to some of his policies and he enacted it raised a lot of their taxes and they shut down the plant leaving Mm -hmm. 85 percent of the city unemployed Mm. And uh, in a recent year, not recent, but I think it was like in 2015, Endicott, New York was voted like the second most depressed city in the United States. Mm. And uh, everyone looked at us, a few people spat on us. They didn't like people trying to make their life, well, not make their life better, but just trying to bring sunshine into their life. It was sure. just a difficult area. Mm. And um, you were also having I, a hard time with your companion. Uh, yeah, no, the, the companion before that, um, he was from Southern California. And we got along for the most part, um, but we got way too heated playing um, church, uh, playing PDA ball, just playing basketball with each other. And we almost got into a fist fight with each other. Uh, yeah. Um, Sounds about right with missionaries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my mission president separated us and put him with, and put me with this guy. And uh, yeah, um, it was just, a really rough area. I uh, totaled my first car on my mission up there. Um, it wasn't snowy or anything like that. I'm not going to get into specifics of the detail, uh, specifics of the car accident, but it was just a really rough time. Mm-hmm. I was living like in, in I was like having a, an anxiety attack that lasted for like four, uh, for like two weeks after wow. I got into the car accident. And uh, I called my mission president. I said, "Look, I'm I'm really struggling right now. Um, I need to tell you a few things." And that's when I told him. Um, but I want to continue by saying that I wasn't a perfect missionary. I, uh, 
if something didn't make sense to me, I didn't do it. And, you know, like say for instance, uh, I couldn't study in the mornings. I could not do it. I'd be falling asleep at my desk every single time. And so I was just like, all right, well, I'm going to try something new. Break mission rules, but I don't care. I'm going to sleep in till this point, and then I'm going to stay awake and then do my study at night. And um, it's still the same amount of time being a missionary. It's not like I'm not spending the time. It's just I cannot study in the mornings, and I, and I still can't. I still can't get up and study in the mornings. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, well, let me just say something on that real quick. You know, it's funny because you explaining that to me now <laughs> – makes sense right like you're like yeah i can't study in the morning i tried it doesn't work out so i'm going to sleep in till 8 30 or 9 30 or whatever it is yeah and then evening instead of going to bed at 10 30 i'm going to stay up at a, at, and do my two hours between 9 30 and 11 30 and go to bed an hour later or whatever yeah but to me now i'm sitting here now and i'm like yeah if that works better do it but as a missionary i could understand like that is breaking rule you know what i mean like it's so yeah the different when you're in that missionary bubble like yeah. it's so it can be so rigid i actually yeah. had my second my second mission president because my first president i loved them both i loved them both had great relationships with both of them but the second one was so different than the first and one of the things i remember him saying at a mission at a at a mission conference or his own conference or something he's like he got up there and he goes sometimes it might be okay to just say hey companion i know you're struggling why don't you sleep in for about an hour and that was so foreign to me. I was like, what? You know? <laughs> and so, yeah, I could imagine how like something like that would would be so foreign to everybody else, but makes so sense. You're sitting out here and it makes sense. It's just yeah. crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. Go on. So about this time, um, after I told my mission president, he insisted that I come out to my parents again. Um, I already came out to my mom at this point, but he wanted me to come out to my dad because mm -hmm. I hadn't told him anything. Um, I was very reserved to do so because um, my dad, I didn't want to make him feel guilty because he wasn't really there from the ages like six to 12. And so I thought by me telling him that I'm trans, he would have taken it like the whole thing was his fault. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want him to have that kind of guilt because it really wasn't. Um, do you feel that real quick before you, and I keep interrupting you and I'm sorry, but I, I just, I really want to ask this question while it's in my mind. Do you feel like that had anything to do with it? With my no, I don't think so. Because I was feeling that way even when my mom and my dad were still living together. We're still we're, we're married. I was still feeling that way. One of the questions that came through, I ask every all the time. People ask, you know, I let people ask anonymous questions. And one of the questions that came through was, was there any sort of traumatic experience in your life at all before you started feeling this way? No, but there was one instance and I don't want to say his name um, at all because it just wouldn't be fair. Um, sure. But uh, I was maybe six and this older boy was about uh, 11 at the time and uh, he fondled me. Hmm. And uh, that's about all. Where, I where was he? Was it like at school, at church? Where was it? It was at his house. Okay. Was he someone you knew through church, through school? Or just someone I knew through church. Okay. All right. Um, and uh, did you ever tell anybody about that? Um, I don't want to get too much into that without because I feel like I gave too many details that would give away who the person is. Sure. Um, and so I don't want to. Um, 
did you ever, did you ever have any con like later any sort of closure or conversation with that person about that happening where they just got it out of your life completely? Um, I was good friends with him up until um, up until he graduated from high school. Hmm. Okay. So, um, yeah, um, I never called him on the carpet for it or anything like that because he's less accountable. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. I see what you. I see what you're saying. Okay. So, um, uh, do you feel like that at all contributed to this? Anything that was going on? I don't think it helped, but I don't think it was an underlying factor. It's just something that happened along the way. If that makes sense. It, to it totally does. Yeah, just something that happened. That. If you if you go over a speed bump before you get into a car accident, is it speed bump's fault? Yeah, right. No, that and that that totally makes sense. I'm asking the question just because it was asked anonymously, and I want to make sure everybody's questions are, ans are answered. So, okay. So, um, back to talking to your dad. So, did you? Uh, is that at that point did you come out to your dad? I did. Okay. And how? Um, did I was extremely nervous. Um, my dad and my stepmom are both extremely conservative people mm. um my mom yeah my, from my mom's side i was listening to rush limbaugh every single morning and things like that um, i called him uncle rush growing up um and uh every time i would come home yeah um to my dad's house i'd be listening to sean hannity at dinner and uh, uh bill o'reilly back when he was on and uh things like that and people like that you mean like the Fox News Network, or yeah, that's all I grew up watching. Yeah, is, um, that and so, um, your, and dad, your dad active member or not? No, he was never. Uh, he, uh, my mom tried to get him to go uh, have the missionary discussions when they got married, but or excuse me, um, after I was born, and my dad liked the missionaries, had nothing against them, but he just wasn't interested in joining. Okay, does he have any religious background himself? No, his parents are Protestants. That's about it. He's not active in any church. Great guy, though. I love my dad, but yeah. yeah. So you come out to him and your stepmom, too, or just him? Yeah. Just my uh, my dad and my stepmom, because me and my stepmom are pretty close, and uh, I have no animosity or ill will, will towards her in any way, and I don't have any animosity towards my dad. So, mm -hmm. yeah, my dad, growing up, and I were best friends. I mean, yeah. he... Don't get me wrong. When he needed to discipline me, he had no problem putting on that the, the swift fist, the, the that swift boot of justice or whatever, or however you're supposed to say yeah, it. Yeah, no problem on the law, right? Yeah, no yeah. problem putting on the law. But um, when I wasn't in trouble or anything like that, me and him were always building stuff or going on motorcycle rides in the back country of Ione, things like that, for hours on end. Um, driving through Ione to fill up gas, even though it was totally illegal. But then the lawmen out there, the police out there, didn't care at all. Things like that. So, yeah. Did uh, so? How did he react? Um, to my face, he was very polite. He was understanding and everything like that. To my knowledge, later on, he was saying anti-trans jokes, um, but he's never actually said any of that stuff to me. That's just what I've heard. Um, but I never really expected anything more from him because my dad doesn't like talking about emotions. He doesn't like talking about feelings. And uh, I wasn't really expecting him to like all of a sudden say, what are your preferred pronouns? What's this? What's that? It's just like, no, you're, you're going to be sunny from now on. And we're, that's how, that's what we named you. And that's what we're going to call you. So uh, 
yeah um that was that um but yeah that's the very first time i told them yeah Hmm. uh, was that on a phone call or yeah i got permission to call home i mean after that i called home a few times because i was kind of worried i ruined my relationship with my dad um things like that and uh, mission president apparently they have a log that knows that can track all the phone calls going out and uh, they saw that hey why was sunny on the phone for like six hours calling his parents yeah yeah so uh you, you mentioned earlier you felt like the mission president was seeking for ways to send you home. Maybe you could start by talking about the differences between how Bishop Stolzing handled it versus how your mission president handled it. At first, he was okay with it, both of them. Um, so when I said I was on the perfect missionary, I try to like get in with missionary banter because I know missionaries, although they ride the bikes and they act all perfect and know a bunch of things about Jesus, they sometimes don't talk like missionaries at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, you know, that strange things happen on the mission. <laughs> yeah. You're telling me <laughs> yeah, like wrestling in garments and things like that. And, uh, weird stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, if you were playing a game called, would you rather, have you heard of this game before? Yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah missionaries are playing, would you rather? And I came up with a rather good one. Um, mission president got wind of that. Mm. And, uh, then on top of that, um, there was a guy who I was a district leader at the time. Uh, there was a guy who I was uh, uh, on exchanges with. And he never, this is weird for me to talk about because he never actually like stated that he didn't want to wrestle. We were just wrestling with each other and I pinned him. And uh, he then said I assaulted him. Mm-hmm. So those are the two reasons why I was sent home. That on top of the gender dysphoria. But like with the assault thing, missionaries fight each other all the time. first of all like yeah let me just say just to clarify what i'm saying a lot of weird things happen on the mission that sounded kind of creepy let me just explain for those who are not members of the church so you go on a mission you don't watch tv you don't listen to radio you don't go to movies you don't date you can't be within arm's length of the opposite sex you have to be within arm with within eyesight of another person that's your companion 24 hours a day seven days a week Usually those you have those companions for six weeks. Just to go back to that, what you just said, arm's length of a companion. My, my, um, one of my companions, his, uh, his sister passed away while he was on his mission. And in order to get a hug from the opposite sex, he had to call the mission president because he needed some comfort. Just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not calling home. You're, I mean, at least when I was a missionary, we didn't even, we couldn't even email. It was all letters, you know, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, you got to keep yourself entertained somehow. Yeah. And so, yeah. Like they're not reading the Bible does get boring after a while. I'm sorry. I just said it. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And you, I mean, like I said, I mean, there are times where you're trying to have fun. And so, yeah, they, you resort to things like I remember coming back from my mission and my my trainer came out and we hung out. We went on a double date together, and we thought we were the most hilarious people on earth. And the girls thought we were the weirdest people you ever met. You know what I mean? Just because yeah. the mission humor is so different than anything else. But wrestling is something that happens all the time. Yeah, all the time. So yeah, that I mean, you hearing me hearing that you were wrestling a, a, another missionary. That's just that was like a daily occurrence on the mission. Yeah. No, I mean, and wrestling in your garments. I mean, it's weird i know but like it's not unheard of everyone does it it's not like i was doing it for get off in a homosexual way or something like that it was just 
Right. I was bored. We were both we were about ready to go to bed, and I tackled him. That's all, and that's how it started. So right. yeah, um, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so yeah, I came home. home. Okay, I came home. Um, again, um, the when I got in the car, because I know my mission is the very first time I had an anxiety attack. The second time I had an anxiety attack was when my mission president called me. And confronted me about everything and told me that I was going to be on a plane ride the next day going home. Mm. And uh, I just started breaking down. I had a huge anxiety attack. Um, we already had a few appointments scheduled for that day. And it was be about four hours before the mission president came to pick me up. So we went out and we did those service projects that we had planned. And then um, we uh, came over. We uh, I came home. I packed. The mission president came to pick us up. And... Uh, yeah, I went home and then we went home. And then I went to the airport. I flew out of the Albany airport. Um, yeah, and I I think I still have the United Airline ticket I flew home, uh, the American Airline ticket I flew home on. But uh, yeah, um, after that, depression started hitting really hard. Let me, let me stop you there and ask a couple of questions. So you had an anxiety attack uh finding out you were going home early tell me what it was that you were scared of coming home and seeing the disappointment in my young men's leaders um coming home and getting ridiculed for my dad um real quick from your dad wait a minute your dad's not a member he, he'd be concerned that you could no, he didn't want me to go on a mission. He wanted me to join the military. Mm, okay. I, I didn't, I thought he was just going to come home and say, well, you've wasted this amount of your time of your life. And, uh, right. Okay. Uh, fun things like that. Okay. Um, go on. Um, anxiety attack because I never wanted to come home early. Um, because I felt like I had failed. Mm -hmm. I got to that point, discounting my entire 20 years, that, uh, 20 months that I did serve, like all that was for nothing. Cause I didn't serve the last four. Um, you know, let me, let me comment on that too. Cause I, I want people to know, cause there might be somebody out there who's thinking, uh, well, you know, you, you must've done something wrong and you were feeling guilty or something like that. And let me just clarify why I, I, I completely understand what you're going through. I, I served the whole 24 months, but there was an opportunity for me, my, my two year mark came in between uh the two transfers right uh like i it was like right in the middle so i could have gone home the transfer before my two-year mark or the transfer after and my mtc companion was one of my best friends mm -hmm. and he he was going to go home the one before he <laughs> he and i had very different missions <laughs> you know what i mean and so he was like aching to get out <laughs> uh, and so he, but we were so close and we had been talking about going home together for so long that he was like really, really, really wanting me to go home early. And, um, and I was like, no, I can't do it. I've got to hit that two year mark. And we're talking about a difference of three weeks, you know yes. what I mean? And, and it was so important to me to hit that two years mm -hmm. that I wouldn't do it. And then also before that, there was an opportunity. I can't remember exactly why, but the mission president had offered me to go home again on that date. But it was like two weeks 
before the transfer. You know what I mean? Like he was like, you know, Elder Adlow, if you want to go home at this transfer, like I'm totally cool with it. You've served honorably. You know, you can go home early. It, it would be helpful for you. You get a chance to get to school, like all this stuff. I remember writing home about it and being like, I might actually be coming home in two weeks, you know? And, uh, and yeah, it was the same thing. Like I had anxiety about it even then. Right. I was like, Oh man, I can't. But you like, had, yeah, two weeks to prepare. I didn't. I'm saying. Hey. Like, I couldn't even imagine like them calling me when it's not my day. Cause you like six months before you're getting the little itineraries of when you're going to go home. You know what I mean? Exactly. And so, so like all of a sudden one day they're like you're going home today, I would freak out. You yeah, know the, I mean? the night before I was gonna be flying out. Um, yeah, the reason why I said my mission president was looking for a way to send me home was because on that because I he did my, his closing interview with me in the car ride from Oneida or Oneonta, excuse me, Oneonta, New York to Syracuse, which is about a two and a half hour drive. He did his closing interview with me then. And uh, he told me that ever since I told him I was transgender, I was skating on thin ice as it was. Wow. And I don't know if he actually remembers saying that or whatever. Um, but yeah, um, he came in, uh, pres- that, that mission president came into my mission um, at about my nine month mark. Um, I had uh, the son of Joseph B. Worthland as my first mission president. Um, great guy. I liked him a lot. He didn't let his missionaries get away with anything. He told us if our hair grew out too long, we look like a hippie, but if we shaved it too close, we look like a monk, things like that. Just a great mission president. And his wife was great and everything. And then this new mission president came along and, uh, totally flipped the mission upside down. So, yeah. Um, and yeah. So, so, um, have you had any contact with that mission president since you left? the mission once Hmm. and how did that contact go um that that would be more in place going chronologically that make more sense going on Uh, sorry well yeah well you'll you'll let me know in that hey real quick are you hearing like any background noise in there like are you hearing any crackling or anything i'm adjusting in my chair a lot no, no, no. I, I'm just wondering because I was hearing a little click in my thing, and I and I don't think it's carrying over, but I no, was so so um uh all right. So you you come home from your mission. When you come home, how do members treat you? Um, the very first person I because when you go on your mission, your ward changes a lot. Uh the ward, your home ward changes a lot. Every every face is different. The very first person I saw that I recognized was uh jared kobabe yeah and uh he came up to me and gave me a huge hug and said welcome home wasn't expecting you home for a while but we're really glad you're here um and that and to me you correct me if i'm wrong but it's probably the perfect response it was one of the better ones yeah yeah um yeah i remember sitting there in the pew right there because uh yeah, I think at the time my family was starting to go less active. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was sitting in the pew alone and uh, Bishop Solsing got up and said, Hey, a uh, member, uh, a missionary came home. His name is Sonny Smith. They're going to be hearing from him in a few weeks. 
And uh, yeah, I got a few people come up and talk to me afterwards, say, how was the mission? Things like that. But no one asked me why I came home early or anything like that. Um, I got to imagine also because, I mean, I remember when you came home and unless someone had told me, uh, I think I think I was probably in ward council and had just heard in ward council that like they you came home a little bit early. But had I not been in that council and I just saw you, I'd be like, oh, he's back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I wouldn't have had any idea. It's not like goes away in a blink of an eye. It's going to be April next month. It seems like next week. So it's like, who right. cares? Right. But so, that four months means so much. So, yeah. But I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it seems to you, I'm sure, coming back like so early. Yeah. As someone like me who, who was just living life, when you came back, I would just be like, oh, he's back. He must have yeah. finished. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't notice, but yeah, it's just the fact that I knew it's been sure. bothering me. And so, yeah, when I got home, I started tanking into depression, like mm. extremely hard. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I went on my very first date with, with someone when I got home. Um, it was maybe like two weeks after I got home and, uh, I don't know what it was, but something in my mind started telling me that my soul was no longer valid because I didn't serve that last four months. And I'm becoming, I'm already a son of perdition as is. So there's no point in me continuing this mortal existence. Wow. Let me ask you something about that real quick. Son of perdition. What, why would you think that? Because there might've been someone else. I'm going to get teary eyed. I'm just going to talk through it. Um, there might've been someone else in that four months that I could have found and brought to the gospel and their soul was now in my hands and all the mistakes that they made in that time were my fault. Cause I didn't stay on my mission. Wow. So, okay. Okay. But you said you were already a son of perdition. Did you feel like that before you came home early? No. I, okay. So the, so coming home early made you feel like you were a son. Yeah. of perdition. Yeah. And for people who aren't members, son of perdition is basically like, well, we don't even, we don't even know if Judas Iscariot truly is, but like somebody who is damned to hell for sure. Uh, I'm pretty sure in the second chapter of Acts, they do refer to Judas as the son of perdition, the son of perdition. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> but regardless, my my point is is that like do you, let's let's that's what you're feeling like then. Yeah. Now looking back. Do you still feel that way or do you, you kind of prefer perspective and go, ah, that maybe I was being a little dramatic. It was dramatic. It was definitely dramatic, but in the anxiety attack I was having, cause it wasn't just, I tend because I'm not sure if it's a borderline personality thing or not, but ever, but my anxiety attacks are a lot stronger. Oh, sure. sure. They last a long time. That was about a two month anxiety attack that I was having that I just couldn't get out of. It was extremely surreal, and I couldn't tell anyone about it because I didn't know what I was experiencing. Sure, sure. Um, I just the reason I bring that up is because I I just think about that. And listen, I've been in spots in my life where, boy, things are seem like they're crashing, and you're looking around and you're like, "This is a, this is quite the fire," you know, that I'm going through, and you don't know where the end is going to come. So I understand in that moment feeling that way but like looking back i mean you understand that 
if you believe in the Savior, yeah, that the atonement, even if even if what you're saying is a hundred percent true, that there was somebody in that four months that you were supposed to teach and all of that stuff, you realize that the atonement still applies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't I couldn't actually have a logical thought in that time. Oh, totally makes sense. I'm just saying now looking back, I understand yeah. in that moment your your things when you're in that state, I, and I've I've dealt with and believe me, I've dealt with enough people with with mental illness and personality disorders very close to me that I, I know that when you're going through that state, you're not thinking rationally. No. You know, it's it's there's something that takes over when you're dysregulated that yeah, that you can't you can't form logical thoughts and you do things that you normally would not do. No, not at all. Yeah. And thinking that I was a son of perdition because I came home early was obviously an irrational thought. Sure. But, but you, but, but that goes to say, I mean, the reason I want, I want to really spend some time on this is because there is a cultural aspect to being a member of the church. Well, absolutely. And, I know and, a lot of people absolutely love the culture of the church. And um, in fact, um, I have a real, a, a, a she was the very first person that I, not, not the first person I came out to, but after I told Bishop Solsing, I went and after I came out to Bishop Solsing, I went to her and asked her for advice on how to come out to my mom hmm. um, because I trusted this woman so much and I love her to death. We still keep in contact and I adore her. Um, and uh, she, I honestly consider her my second mom. Like a lot of times if I actually need a big life changing decision, I always got to talk to her first. Um, but yeah, when I, uh, um, uh, when, uh, she wrote to have her name removed from the records of the church. And, uh, one of the things she missed the most about going to church was the culture of it. She uh-huh. missed everyone. She missed seeing the smiling faces on Sunday, the callings, watching the kids grow up going from, you know, little deacons to going on their mission and coming back from their mission and seeing that transformation growth, the character arc and everything like that. She just loved it. And growing and seeing those people, those kids start families of their own Mm -hmm. and everything. And she loved doing that. And she loved it. She was always in the young women's program and everything like that. Yeah. So the thing is though, is that you're right. Like when I say culture, that's a broad term and there's a lot of really great things about the culture. A lot of, great, great, great things that should stay. There's also some things in the culture that needs to go away. And one of those things is, is exactly what you're saying. Sometimes missionaries come home early and there's, and every, I feel most of the time it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the right thing to do in your circumstances, but a lot of the times it's the right thing. And a lot of missionaries who come home, I have a buddy who came home three months early because he had hepatitis. He had a hepatitis, one of the hepatitises and he was sick. And they were like, you're, you know, you got three months to go. Why not just instead of having you sick out here for the next month and all that, we'll just send you home early. And that was the, the mission president's decision. Yeah. And he said, that's what we're going to do. He served honorably. There was nothing wrong with it. He didn't do anything wrong, but he was concerned what yeah. people were going to think just because he was sick. Absolutely. You know, and and that's that's what I'm saying is that, look, you're already coming home and it, you're already struggling with the fact of things like you're just thinking in your own head, right? Like there's somebody out there that I could have seen yeah. and now I'm not going to see him. We don't need people piling on by ostracizing or being like, what's the deal? 
what do you need to repent of? You know, that type of stuff. So. Yeah, no. Um, I never told anyone why I came home until a uh, uh, a close friend of mine. Um, we were getting to be really good friends. Um, this person went on their mission, and I enlisted at that time. But um, we got to be really close, and uh, they just asked me, like, why did you come home early? What was going on with that? And I confided in her what was going on, and she was the most understanding and sympathetic person about it. I wasn't expecting it, but yeah, she was. And a lot of people, if I would have sat down and told them the truth about what was going on, I feel like a lot of people would have been that way because I, I feel like Carmichael first ward had a lot of gems. There was a lot of really good people in that war. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, Yeah. I, I got to tell you, it was funny when I was an Elder Scorn president. Um, I got called to be the Elder Scorn president in that ward. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, they're only calling me because there's literally no one else. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. was like, you know, there were the, there was a few people and the few people who were there, like, you know, one was in a wheelchair, one was sick, you know, the other guy, you know, there was like six or seven guys. And then the rest of them were like either in bishoprics or other young men's or something. So I was like, oh, there's nobody else. But then when I got in there and saw the people and saw what they were doing, they were some of the mightiest men I've ever dealt with. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, and they're, they're just like my, my brothers. I kept in contact with them forever and I, mm-hmm. I love them to death. Those, those guys, that group of guys, they were small, but incredibly mighty. Yeah. And you were one of them. Um, so, uh, yeah, so so you come back, um, you spend a little bit of time at home, and I remember your plan was to enlist. You were going to yeah. enlist in the Coast Guard? Was yeah, I wanted to enlist in the Coast Guard originally, and I still think that would have been super fun. Um, I was going to try to be a rescue swimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, I played water polo, and I swam in high school, and every waking moment I had, I was over at the American River, uh, things like that, just jumping off the cliffs. Pardon the name, but like the big tit that rock out there that was i spent so much time jumping off that sure. the all of the fun things about the river i was just a river rat and uh, i was just like this is perfect for me i would love to jump out of a helicopter into the bering sea and save someone that would just be like the best thing ever um unfortunately the closest recru- uh, coast guard recruiting office was um down in bakersfield california mm. and uh it was a matter of convenience because there was an army recruiting station right over there by the sunrise mall. Right. Right. And, uh, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go see what the army has to offer. And, uh, that's what I did. And, okay. uh, yeah. How, how long did you serve? I, uh, my original contract was for five years because I went in as a special forces recruit. I went in trying to get into special forces, you know, the green berets and, uh, Rambo. Yeah. I was trying going in, trying to be, a green beret. Um, I made it, uh, through basic training. I made it through airborne school of which not as fun as it would sound. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I got to Fort Bragg finally and, uh, every, I, I was, I managed to keep my gender dysphoria and everything in a box and I didn't let it out. I don't know why it started slipping up when I, right when I got to Fort Bragg, I started having an anxiety attack and I, I just about life. I didn't, I, I started those 
negative self thoughts are starting to come up to me. I couldn't think through. I couldn't think through it. I couldn't think straight. And uh, I, before the training really even started, I opted out because I knew I wasn't in a mental space to actually try to go through it. You know, I, it's not nearly as hard as Navy SEAL training, but Green Berets have something called selection. And uh, it's just three weeks where you get maybe uh, about 20 hours of sleep in that three weeks. And you walk about six, seven marathons with an 80 pound rock on your back. And, uh, I knew that with my mental state, I couldn't get through that. Mm -hmm. If I would have gone in in a perfect mindset, I could have. I was never the greatest at rocking. But anyway, I decided to V-dub, voluntarily withdraw. Um, I voluntarily withdrawed from the course before it started. And um, I regret that. But at the same time, I don't because I know I couldn't have made it through the training. Without would, you, would you have gone back after you voluntarily withdrew or was that? I, that would have been a, because I decided to withdraw. It was a five-year return date, so I would have had to re-enlist and then come back in for another go. Ah, uh, okay. And yeah, what what was it? Was there some sort of catalyst that, that triggered the anxiety, or was it something different? I really I don't know what started triggering it, but I just started panicking. Like I got to my barracks room for the very first time. You know, sleeping in bays. You know, just large groups where with bunk beds. And I started just sitting down and thinking about everything. And like, um, because there was about a three week break in between basic training and airborne school, I knew I wasn't at the same physical level and things like that. My rucking skills weren't that great. And all these things started coming in and I started freaking out. And uh, um, I just didn't think I could make it through the training. And I started listening to the voice inside my head. Um, yeah. And I didn't want to tell any of my cadre the real reason why uh, cadre, the people that take you through it, like the, they're like in charge of everything. So when I say I'm going to start using military lingo a lot now and uh, it's probably going to throw you off a little bit. So if you ever don't understand something, let me know. But yeah, the cadre, um, I didn't tell them what was going on. I just said I need to get out. And they said, why? And I made up a lie, which I feel bad about. But I sold them that I only really wanted this contract to have a guarantee at airborne school. And, uh, now that I have that, I just want to go into the big army and do fun things. And, uh, they weren't very happy about that, but probably another reason why I got a five year return date. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, from there I got folded into the 82nd airborne division. Okay. And about that time I started, I met and started dating, fell in love with my wife. Mm, okay. Was she also in the airborne? No, she was not. Her dad was though. Her dad was a retired uh, uh, sergeant first class. Mm, so. okay. Now going through your, um, uh, so you, you, you know, they were upset with you um, and you, again, nobody knew you were dealing with gender dysphoria. And did you feel the gen, you said, you mentioned, I just want to make sure I'm clear about this. Your gender dysphoria started coming up, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like it kind of came up and caused some anxiety, partially caused the anxiety. Because of coming home early from uh, the church and everything like that, my initial plan was to go into the army and save the money that I needed to actually transition to pay oh. for everything. That was my whole reason for enlisting because everything would have been taken care of. Um, housing would have been taken care of. Food would have been taken care of. All I really needed to do was show up every day and save money. Mm -hmm. And I calculated I would have needed about $70,000 to go through with everything I wanted done because it's not cheap. And uh, I was more than willing to do it. 
And so I got into the army, I just started saving. And um, yeah, when I got married, that changed everything. So okay. So during this time frame between your mission and, and this, you know, the, the school situation, uh, and then did, did you still go to church, still active? I was because that friend of mine um, that I said earlier before she went on her mission really emphasized it. Um, she would call me on Sundays and try to help me pick out a tie to wear or, uh, or uh, she asked me to help her with her Sunday school class, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, but regardless, I, I just still wanted to transition really badly at that point. And did you, did you feel at that time that you could transition and still be a member of the church? Back then the rules were a lot different. And I knew that if I would have started taking hormones, I would have been disfellowshipped and ultimately excommunicated. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Cause I know, for example, in our ward in Carmichael ward, when I was elders quorum president, we had someone, this is a, uh, this is a hot take here, everybody. But uh, while I was there, um, we had a transgender man. So born a female, but transitioned to being a man in our ward. And uh, he had come to church. Um, he was asked to go to Relief Society. Um, and he did and was asked to use a female bathroom um, by, I can't remember who it was who, it wasn't Bishop Stolzing. I, I don't know if it was someone from the stake or that was, that was just the rule that was kind of there and at some point uh he had said he was leaving early because at that time church was three hours long yeah and uh and he would leave early because he'd say yeah i gotta use the bathroom but like the women would be very uncomfortable if someone who a man because he very much looked like a man yeah very much um that uh you know he, he, he didn't want to freak anybody out by walking into the women's bathroom so he he just left early so he didn't have to and so anyway he had worked out an issue where um where Bishop Stolzing, he he'd requested from Bishop Stolzing that he come to priesthood. And uh, he talked to me about it, and I was like, I don't have any problem with it. You know, if somebody's wife wanted to come and sit in on yeah. know for him, like, we'd let her. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, we wouldn't kick her out. So I was like, yeah, I don't I don't have any problem with it. You know, let's, let's have him come in. And we actually sat down with everybody and talked with everybody about it. I don't know if you were, I don't, this might have been before you came back from your mission. I can't remember, but... I remember Bishop Solsing mentioning something about it. Yeah, he came in and spoke in our in our class about it. He came in and said, "Okay, so someone's going to come in here, and you're going to have to, you know, be respectful and be mindful of what you say, you know." And uh, and then he came in, and for some reason, he he came in, I think, once or twice, and then afterwards, and, and nothing nothing happened. Like nobody, everybody was very nice to him. That from what I remember, everybody was very nice to him. I didn't hear anything about any discomfort or anything, but he just uh, stopped stopped coming and so um, i was never under the impression that somebody who was transitioning in that time frame would have been disfellowshipped or excommunicated so that was my understanding but yeah i yeah i i don't know i i don't know right i, I never looked at it but i just knew that we had somebody so uh maybe maybe you knew a little bit better than i do no. I don't know, maybe you looked into it no okay. I, that was uh, just your concern right that was your concern yeah no and uh yeah. So sorry. Um, no, that's yeah. 
So, so going back, and I didn't mean to like throw a wrench in there. I'm just saying, like, I, I, I don't know the. I still don't really know what the rules are right now as far as transgenderism. And so I know like, that um, if you have transition, you can go take the sacrament. Um, I think you can still be baptized. Um, I know that they, the church does have in their handbook, they want you to use their preferred pronouns and everything like that. Um, I think it's really just to keep the peace and everything. Um, but you can't, you can't receive your endowment. You can't go through the temple and all that stuff. And uh, I have heard that. And it's interesting when I heard that and, and uh, I, I heard this from someone who was, who is, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're considered a general authority, but higher up in the church who said currently transgender people, and this is not doctrine. It's just what I've heard offhand currently transgender people. Uh, yeah. They can't get their endowments. They can't do temple work simply because it has not been revealed yet what is going to happen in the hereafter with regard to those people. Yeah. And so as of right now, it's not a matter of wanting to discriminate, but because we just don't know, it hasn't been revealed to the brethren, the prophet, the apostles, what God intends to do with transgender people yeah. in the afterlife, which I thought if that is legitimate, you know, that makes, I guess that's understandable, but yeah. I know there are people out there who are going to be like, nope, that's discriminatory. And maybe oh, that's for all I know, I'm going to get resurrected in a woman's body for all I know, but I don't know. I, <laughs> you don't. The beauty, the beauty of this gospel. And I was just, I was actually just messaging with a friend of mine who has been struggling with kind of struggling with some faith off and on and has some mental health issues herself was I said, the beauty of the gospel is line upon line, precept upon precept. And as things move forward, as the, as the people need different standards, different policies, different things to help bring more people to Christ, those things can change. And I do certainly hope this is an area where we continue to progress and change. Yeah. So, Especially in California. Yeah. In California. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's, it's very interesting to me that California from the prop eight, situation has been the epicenter of this for the church and yeah. but that's i actually think it's very interesting and fascinating and i think when i'm you know god willing i get to 70 80 years old i look back and i go that was a pretty amazing time you yeah. know and so anyhow back to your story so now you're um uh i kind of interrupted you and i don't even know remember where we were but uh um, the 82nd yeah so you're meeting your you're, you're meeting your, who would eventually become your wife. You're dating. Yeah. How does the, does the gender dysphoria come up before you're married? Do you talk about that? I told her that I was transgender before we even started dating. Ah. Um, Is she so, a member of the church? She was. Um, I met, <laughs> I met her asking if her best friend was single. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, she said, uh, well, she's, about to go on her mission, but uh, I'm single, and uh, we started texting, we started flirting. Um, uh, this is be Mormon time, right? But like two weeks later, like no, not two weeks, like three days later, I showed up with a bouquet of flowers, and uh, to her house, I introduced myself, I introduced myself to her dad, and I said, "Hey, my name is Sunny Smith, and I would love to take your daughter on a walk." 
and uh, I gave her the flowers and everything like that, and uh, we both went. We both went on the walk. And um, anyway, <laughs> her dad went up to her mom afterwards, right after we left, and said, "Wow, a nice young man just came up and asked uh, to take our daughter on a walk. Gave her flowers and everything. When was the last time you got me flowers?" <laughs> <laughs> man. Well, no, but I got, I really loved her family. Um, that was one of the biggest things. Um, me and her dad are so much alike. Um, great guy. Uh, her mom is amazing. Her two little sisters are amazing, and her brother is amazing. But yeah, I told them. I told Lessa, who in turn told her family that I was transgender, that I struggled with it. <laughs> um. They, everyone was okay um, for a while. Um, but uh, so, yeah, um, I had a really, really another huge anxiety attack at a terrible time. Um, the mission of the 82nd Airborne is to jump from a plane at 500 feet into an enemy controlled airport and take it and then start landing troops there rapidly that's what they do that's like their whole purpose when um kim jong-un i think is how you say it was running his jaw in north korea um they were talking about sending the 82nd airborne in all fifty-six thousand men and uh they told us that it was an acceptable loss rate of 90 percent. that would be okay for them wow. 90 percent of the 82nd gone that would be an acceptable loss rate for them and i was just like great um but that's not what triggered it. What really triggered it was we were preparing, um, not for North Korea or anything, but we were just preparing. We were um, did a nighttime mass attack, uh, meaning that we were going to send in an entire battalion, jumping from a plane to take an uh, to take an airfield. And if you ever look at like a map of Fort Bragg, there's big patches of cleared out land specifically designed to land paratroopers there. That's what they're there for. And uh, anyway, so. There's a lot of great videos that you could watch, but uh, I started having an anxiety attack as we were loading onto the plane. Mm. And uh, that continued up until about two seconds before we jumped. I It was about probably two hours that we were on the plane just flying around Fort Bragg because the Air Force has to justify it and whatever. Um, but yeah, I, for some reason, was just convinced I was going to die. I knew I was going to die if I jumped out of that plane. And... Uh, yeah, um, you say you hear the green light go and everyone started walking and all of a sudden adrenaline took over. It's like I've done this dozens of times before, whatever. Um, but that anxiety attack really stuck with me. Um, I wasn't able to do it again. I, I couldn't. You completed that jump. I completed the jump. The reason why I really did is being a jump refusal in the 82nd results in a lot of bad things. First of all, everyone behind you at that point can no longer jump. So they're all scratched. They're not very happy. And then, um, and I think I was the third jumper in line at the time because when the door opened, I was able to see outside the door. So I wasn't very far back. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, no, the army makes it really dumb if you decide not to jump. So, um, yeah, like UCMJ is a ter not a terrible thing, but like they take away... They would have taken away my rank, all the rank I had at that point. They would have demoted me back down to the UCMJ means? Uh, United States Code of Military Justice. Oh, okay. Okay. UCMJ. Um, 
you lose all your rank. You lose all your rank. They take away half of your pay from that new rank pay because they pay by rank. And so they take away half your pay for 45 days. And then they put you on extra duty, of which means you get to work at 4 o'clock in the morning and you leave at 11 o'clock at night. Wow. Every single day for another 45 days. So uh, they called it a fuzzy 45-45 because the rank on is supposed to be on your chest right about here. So it's to say what rank you are. And if you don't have any rank, you're there at E1. They call you a fuzzy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, fuzzy 45-45. Wow. But then after that, you you couldn't do another job. I couldn't do it again. And then my life really started going downhill in the 82nd. Because if you're a paratrooper in the 82nd who can't who doesn't want to jump, they make your life miserable. Mm. It's wow. kind of defeats the purpose of the 82nd. Um, and then, yeah. Um, so, so what? How long had you been in the 82nd Airborne at that point? Uh, about five months. Okay, and you were supposed to be there for how long? Uh, I don't know because that's not how it works, but I should have been in the military for another four years. Okay. Um, my gender dysphoria started coming back with a vengeance again. Um, cause I managed to suppress it. Um, so let me back up after I jumped for the last time and I had that anxiety attack. Um, my, my, um, my leadership pulled me into an office and said, look, we've noticed that your quality of work is going downhill We've noticed a whole bunch of stuff is going downhill. What's going on? And I started saying, hey, I've been having really serious suicidal ideations lately. I've been trying to work through them and everything like that, but uh, I've just been having really serious suicidal ideations. And they're just like, okay, we can get you through this. And then my platoon lead, uh, my uh, my squad leader, squad, my team leader, excuse me, um, E5, I'm not going to say his name, but um, he pulled me aside. I was like, what's triggering these suicidal thoughts? And I was just like, my my gender dysphoria is really chilling them. And that's when the very first person I came out to in the military was that particular NCO. And um, he's like, oh, don't worry. We can work through this, this, that, and the other. And I'm about to say something very, very I'm just going to tell you what he said. So the next, not the next day, about three or four days later in our battalion built, in our footprint, they call it an AO. I don't know what AO stands for, and I should, but I can't remember. Um, in your AO, it's where your company gets together. They all sit, talk, gather, clean their weapons, plan for the next mass attack, things like that. There's just a, ga- a staging point. Um, he uh, that particular NCO was chewing out, well, not che- was making fun of another. It was making fun of another private there, and uh, he was saying very transphobic things, extremely, like right in front of me. He was pretty angry at me because I made a mistake earlier that day, and so he was chewing me uh, chew, uh not chewing that guy out and very angry at me and he started making fun of me through the stuff that he was saying stuff like um i'm not gonna say his name i'm just gonna call him johnson johnson i bet you're porn when you watch porn i bet it's really weird like i bet you type in things to porn hub like if a chick got it di- got a chick if a chick got a dick does that make it gay like right in front of me and i was just like and i have to follow that guy's orders and i don't have a choice about doing it and if i don't follow that guy's orders i go to jail yeah and uh i attempted suicide and uh wow yeah um man and what did you can you give me do you want to talk about the details of that talking about it um i sat in a uh i had a uh, i sat in my car and i taped off the exhaust pipe with the hose going through it going to my um window i didn't know that catalytic converters make that way of suicide almost impossible but um yeah i sat (laughs) in my car for about six and a half hours wow 
and I was just like, this isn't working. Um, so at some point you're just like, okay, this isn't working. And yeah, yeah. But at that point, my, my ex-wife, my ex-wife knew that something was going wrong because I usually go up to their house for dinner every night and I wasn't there that night. And, uh, this is still before you guys got married. This was before we got married. Yeah. And, wow. um, yeah, I, uh, she, uh, started calling me. I wouldn't answer my phone and she kept on calling me and calling me and calling me and I wasn't answering my phone. And, uh, she, uh, looked at my phone information on Google. Uh, you know, she had access to my iTunes account. So she looked at my location. Um, that was about hour five. And then, um, when I didn't answer, um, she started assuming the worst and she knew I was really struggling with my thoughts at that point. And, uh, she started letting everyone know everyone, everyone. She called my, uh, she, uh, her dad who was in the military, who knows how everything works. Uh, called everyone that needed to get called at that point and said, hey, you have a soldier who's attempting suicide. You need to get on this right now. Yeah, no kidding. Jeez. And, uh, she knew you were doing you what you were doing. Yeah, she knew it. Wow. And, uh, um, the, the triggering, so I, I know you had a lot going on at this time, but was that what that, what your, uh, your officer, the, you know, your supervisor said, was that what triggered it? It was one of the few, one of the things um, that anxiety attack right before I jumped, I was never able to shake it. And all, um, and all of this, and all of this is going through, you're filtering all of this through the lens of your gender dysphoria. Yeah. Okay. And BPD, but I didn't know what BPD, BPD at the time. Sure. But like here you are and you're sitting here and you just confided in somebody that you had, that you were transgendered, that you have gender dysphoria. Yeah, this person made you feel like it's going to be okay, and then right after that is saying these transphobic things. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, um, I yeah. didn't think I could trust him anymore. And so after I called my leadership, um, my captain pulled me into his office and said, "Smith, what happened? I just need to know. You're a solid soldier. What was going on?" And so um, I told them very specifically what happened. And then they asked, all right, with this kind of information, this is all the information we need to uh, kick this particular sergeant out of the military. Um, but I also have to think, you know, yeah, of course, I want to do that. You know, screw him. Um, but at the same time, everyone in the company loved that sergeant. Now, if I would, if it would have been known that I was responsible for getting him picked out of the military, it would have made my life even worse than it was. Mm. And... Uh, so I decided not to. Um, he got called in by the commander and got chastised very significantly from what I from what I've heard. But I was uh, I was at um, during when everything was going on. I was over at um, the army hospital, um, just in the psychiatric ward. I was there for about two weeks afterwards. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, um, and also probably didn't help that I was getting married a couple weeks later. And uh, wow. I was having doubts about that because of my gender dysphoria. I was wondering whether or not I can actually make my fiance happy long term and all of the above. So, so let me stop you right there and ask you a couple of questions because I've heard from other transgendered people that your gender has nothing to do with your sexuality. For me, it does. Okay. How? Because if I was a transition, I would try to live a, the life of a straight woman. I would try to find a man and get married and all that stuff and try to lead 
a regular the regular life of a cisgendered woman mm-hmm. and so um because i'm not i i can't talk to men in that way if that makes sense i just can't do it i haven't been able to make that connect and what, what, what do you mean by that i've you, you... I, when uh so when me and my wife separated i started trying to i have earlier this earlier last year well at the beginning of last year, I was trying to talk to a guy who was gay and I was trying to pursue a relationship with him. And I just, I couldn't do it. Mm. It was so foreign to me. Yeah. So that's interesting. So let me kind of parse this out and try to figure out what, what it is exactly that you're saying. So if you were to transition, you would go the full way, do the, the gender reassignment surgery, try to live as a woman. And you in your mind think with that, that would include being considered a straight woman and try to have a, a full-on relationship with a man. In fact, you know, I would I would like to go back to church and like go to Relief Society and all that stuff and just try to live in a way that I wouldn't be found out that I was trans and everything okay. like that. Okay. That's so, what that's yeah. what your view. Okay. That's what I was so, do. And you at some point last year, and we're I know we're gonna get to this, but last year you were living as a as a as a woman, right? It was actually so, going into the year before that too. Um, yeah, we're gonna get into that um, in the very near future. But, uh, but but at that point, you had tried to date a man, and it didn't work. Yeah, no, I just didn't. And also, I felt really bad doing it because me and my wife were me and my me and my ex wife were not divorced yet. It, in North Carolina, the laws are it takes a whole year of separation before you can actually. Wow. be divorced and mm-hmm. so uh it's coming uh february i think 21st is the day that we separated and so that's when our divorce and our legal proceedings start going and it should be 90 days after that okay. but i felt really guilty for talking to someone else while i was still married to my wife um uh, even though we were uh, even though she was talking to other guys and everything like that and uh i just felt guilty about it okay just for you, you felt like you didn't want to pursue another relationship until, until that. And then and, on top of that, just because I, I wasn't living, how do I say this? I've never actually lived a hundred percent full time as a woman. I have not. I've been able to go to school, and college is a great way to do it because it's a very colleges is just very open and understanding places, and so I could wear whatever I want to school, and the teachers would call me what I wanted to be called, and it was just nice i was going to community college over here in north carolina for a while and uh it was just it was just easy to go it was just very easy going and uh, yeah um i but i still at the end of the day at the end of the college day i still had to go put on my work clothes because i worked a construction job Mm. (laughs) and uh, my boss great guy I like him a lot. Um, never said anything transphobic or anything like that, but he always had this Donald Trump mug. He always drunk out of it every single day and everything like that. Trump 24, he was talking about how the election was stolen, things like that, you know. Fun. Right. So, um, yeah. Um, so going through this then, you're, um, you know, you're, I guess just trying to finish up and wrap up this point because we're going to, we're going to go back, but, what when you when you tried to to date a man and se- live semi live as a woman 
and that didn't work, what did that tell you about yourself, if anything? Dating the man, it was just like, well, I just, I might just be able to find another one because if I, if he would call me my, my feminine pronouns, call me Stacy, which is the name I wanted to go by, um, I was okay with it. But when he started calling me Sonny and things like that, or call me his boyfriend, I just, I couldn't, I, that was where my disconnect really happened. It was because mm-hmm. I just, that felt, I was just wrong. I don't want to say wrong. It just didn't feel right to me. Because I, I really wanted to be the woman in a relationship. So, and this was a man who identified as gay? Yes. Okay. So he he was having a problem, it sounds like, when you were dressed as a woman, he would call you Stacy and do those things. But then also, he would also, when you were dressed as a man, call you Sonny. And that was where you were having the problem. Yeah. Got it. It was just night. Okay, so going back then, so this all happens. You get released from what, your marriage was two weeks after you were getting released from the army. No, I was okay. So I was married in 2018, hmm. December 28th of 2018. I um, I got out of the army. I do believe June. 16th no june 15th 2021 hmm. or 2020 2020 or 2021 20 20 i had to look at my dd 214 um but uh anyway um yeah from there it was just a very very downhill spire uh, spiral i had bad leadership i was gonna try my hardest to say him for the five years but the therapist i was seeing at the time told me that one, if you're a soldier and you, this is a terrible thing and it needs to be changed, but uh, in the army, if you're a soldier and you ask for mental health help, they will not promote you. Wow. It is so hard to get promoted to E5 than from E5 to E6. If you've had any kind of mental health help ever, like in the military. Yeah. That's what I mean. Is that like, let's say that you you're an E3 and you ask for some mental health help. Yeah. And then you get promoted to E4 or whatever. Then when you go for E5, E6, they won't promote you, even though whatever mental health issue you had, you'd resolved? Yeah, no, they won't. If you ever, if you ask for help at all in the army, they don't want to promote you. Do you know why that is? No idea. Hmm. I can't tell you that um, because there's been a lot of um, higher up soldiers. Um, there was a NCO that I didn't know very well, but I knew of him who, uh, I committed suicide because he didn't want to ruin his career, but he didn't want to ask for help either. Wow. And because uh, I mean, I, I, I guess this is me completely guessing and I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the army when they do that. Cause I do believe sometimes, sometimes they have the best of intentions and the, and an unintended consequences, the things that you're talking about. I wonder if, maybe they thought, okay, well, if they have these mental health issues, if they promote, the job gets harder, they'll creep back in and we don't want E5s and E6s committing suicide. So better to just not promote them. I mean, you think, or do you think it's, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying that that might be the thought process. That might be it. Um, I can't tell you. I've never made the rules. Um, well, I do know that that has happened a lot. I know that my uh, father-in-law, I, I saw a few of his friends commit suicide because of that same reason. They, they could not get their help. And uh, they, 
because the army is just that kind of culture. And I, I understand the army is all about lethality and everything like that. And when you're in the middle of a gunfight, I don't think you want to start worrying about your own mental health. But uh, at the same time, the life of a soldier is important. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, I got out of the army. Um, you, you got, but before you get out of the army, you, you do get married in 2018. Yeah. Okay. And how, um, how long after you leave this, the psychiatric facility is the wedding? I want to say two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I gotta say that does say, what, what does that tell you about your ex-wife? Um, I don't want to say anything derogatory about her, um, but that she was desperate and so was I. Oh, that's what it tells me because looking back hindsight, if one of my friends just got a psychiatric ward, but was still planning on getting married, I would say, wait, I'll hold the door. What's we need to talk about this. Is this really the best move for you? I felt pressured too, because, um, her, her whole extended family was flying in. They all live in Idaho and things like that. And uh, that was a lot of money that they spent on plane tickets and everything like that. And uh, I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to cancel all that and everything like that. So my so, dad was flying in. Yeah. So did you think to yourself when this is going on, boy, like, I don't want to have to cancel all this stuff. There's all this money, all these people coming in. I'm just going to go through with it. Uh, yeah. what, what's your headspace at that point? It was, it was that too. Um, I mean, you did love her, right? I did love her. I did. Um, we also, I did feel very obligated to marry her. I'm not saying I didn't love her in that obligation, but we did have premarital sex. And mm -hmm. uh, that didn't help um either especially in the lds culture um you know it wasn't even it wasn't a shotgun wedding at all but in my head i kind of imagined it was so um it wasn't her, her if we didn't get married her dad would have been like just take your time he kind of wanted us to date for a little bit longer because we only dated each other for about five weeks before we got engaged wow so, how long before you got married uh we got engaged we met each other in april we um, got engaged in May, and then we got married in November. In December, pardon me. Wow. But that's, that is prototypical Mormon. It's extremely Mormon. Yeah. Extremely Mormon. And then when you add the military in there, because the military, um, you if you're lower enlisted like I was, you are doing anything you can to get out of the barracks. Living in the barracks sucks. Because they can always wake you up in the middle of the night and like tell you to go downstairs because someone messed up and then proceed to make you do push-ups all night long. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a really, really stupid environment to be in. And so soldiers are always looking for an opportunity to get out. They're always looking for an opportunity to leave. And so you cannot leave unless you get to the rank of E6, of which is a staff sergeant. You cannot leave until you get to that rank, which will start paying you BAS, which is uh, BAH, which is basic basic allowance for housing, and then BAS, which is basic allowance for subsidence. Uh, when you're living in the barracks, they take all that money and put it towards barracks repairs and the chow hall and everything like that. But if you are um, higher enlisted or married, they just give you that in your paycheck and you can go pay rent and everything like that. 
Um, so, so this was also a way for you to get out of the barracks. Yeah. Okay. So. Now, um, yeah, it's funny though. It, all of that five weeks engaged, married six, seven months later. That is so prototypical, typical Mormon. Everything that you've told me about that is everything except the part about the premarital sex. Yeah. But you know that probably happens a lot too, and people just aren't honest about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but uh, so. Um, yeah, so now it was funny when I asked you that question. Um, I was thinking to myself, um, that really says a lot about her and her love for you, you know, that she was willing to, despite the suicide attempt, despite the gender dysphoria, despite the obvious mental health issues that you are having, if you're having suicidal ideation mm -hmm. she still wants to marry you yeah you felt that more of uh she was just desperate to marry anybody not anyone um because like i i do fall back on the, the 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 fact that i did i i i did and i still do love her um the it it's just a rational person would have stopped and said hold up we need to see a therapist for a while and uh, do all this stuff before. Yeah. And that's why the desperate, it, some, some of my friends have called it desperation, but some others like you have referred to it as love. So well, it's, it's, funny, it's, funny, it's funny, man. It could be both. You yeah. know, like it could, it could be, there is serious. I mean, I'm, you know, I've learned a lot about this just over the course of my traumatic life, but when it comes to relationships, um, there's a big codependency that yeah. gets developed really quickly. You, when you're dating somebody, I've noticed you are objective for a very short time. Yeah. <laughs> and then once you, once you, you know, that L word is hit, you're no longer objective. And, and, uh, and it's so interesting how love and trauma are the two things that make you do crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, seriously. Yeah. So, so you get married, and um, how long were you married? Um, 2018, uh, beginning, uh, no, excuse me, the end of 20, uh, 2018 to the beginning of 2022. Okay. And then um, uh, explain to me, um, now, oh, hold on, before, before we go into that. Uh, I know that at some point you started having a faith crisis where you decided to no longer attend church. Was that in that same time frame? Yeah, um, uh, several things happened. Um, I uh, after my suicide attempt, I was just like, you know, I've been putting off and like trying to stay away from dressing and acting feminine, and so I just decided, screw it, I'm gonna go all out and I'm going to enjoy it, and so. Um, I uh, went to David's bridal and just had fun trying on dresses. It's something I've always wanted to do. And so I was just like, you know, screw it. And the girls there were very supportive and loving and understanding. Um, there was a LGBT prom that was going to go on for reasons such as that. Cause I always wanted to go to a high school prom, you know, and a pretty and a pretty dress and all that fun stuff. And uh, I, uh, I never had that opportunity. And so there was an LGBT prom. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go to this. Screw it. And so I went and started looking for dresses to go in. Um, well, um, the branch president of the singles ward found out about that. And he was the guy who was going to do the ceremony. 
and uh, he pulled me in Lessa. Sorry, I didn't want to say her name, but uh, uh, he pulled me and my ex-wife, if I'm to be ex-wife, into a room, uh, into his office and said, look, you're being extremely selfish right now, incredibly selfish. Now I'd be surprised if your guys' marriage lasts two years. And uh, that didn't help. No. Um, then that guy was one of our, was one of the nicest, most Christ-like people I've ever met. And he just snapped like that. Wow. And then after that, um, what was he saying though about that? Was he, was he saying <laughs> you, you should bottle it up or is he saying that you guys shouldn't get married? What did, what did you come away from that? Really? I, I think it was the fact that I was cross-dressing. I hate that term because I really don't feel like a cross-dresser. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the term he used. You're going to allow this cross-dressing to ruin your marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, did your, did your ex-wife know you were doing that? Yeah, she did. Okay. Um, she sent me ideas about different kind of dresses I should try on. Okay. So she knew she was on board. So she's um, on board with it. Yeah, she was. She knew. Uh, like I said, I did she I, articulate that to the bishop. What did she say that to the bishop? No, she was, oh, she see. thought that, Pardon my language, but she thought that his shit don't stink. <laughs> so she didn't want to make him think that she was like going along with it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so then, you know, and then uh, during that same time, because me attempting suicide, going to the hospital, getting out of the hospital, and then starting this whole thing was within like in the same two weeks. And so he said that um, I'm being selfish. Give me one second. My family just got home. um hey mom sarah can you guys be quiet because i'm on a podcast right now sorry that's okay that's okay these things happen yeah well okay let me just let me play i hate the term devil's advocate but let me play that i mean can you understand why he would have these concerns absolutely yeah so um and like hindsight do, do you still know this guy? Does he still come around, or do you, is he? Oh, oh, does he know that you guys are getting divorced? I don't know. I haven't asked him. I haven't spoken to him. Um, I think that he might know, but I haven't actually seen him since he performed Lessa's and mine's wedding. So, but the thing is, is the things that he's saying maybe it didn't happen exactly, but yeah, I mean you know did what he's and i don't know the story of you guys' divorce but did it did it play out the way he said it would not like that ah okay all right it didn't no. play out like that at all okay it played out me and Le- me and my ex-wife are getting divorced one because of um despite me telling her that i struggle with gender and i'm transgender before we got married she's not a lesbian mm-hmm. and uh it got to a point where I couldn't actually be intimate with her unless I was in a more feminine role during that. And that didn't help. Um, that, and I was me, I, you know, say what you will. Um, but I do believe that your partner, you and your partner do have a responsibility to stay in relatively good shape and look good for the other person, not just for yourself, but for your partner. And uh, I wasn't doing that. When I got out of the army and I stopped working out like a fiend, I uh, I started putting on a lot of weight and uh, a lot of weight. And like, it was just, I don't know what it was. It was just like, there's something in the water, but I just started 
packing on the weight. Mm. And so I, uh, that I went from weighing 230 when I got out of the army to 297 in the course of four months. Four months. Wow. Yeah. You were, you were really pounding. There was something in the water. Like I said, and it was, you're just eating everything in sight. Yeah. As someone who has gained and lost over a hundred pounds, uh, yeah, like that's it's funny. Sometimes I tell people, and I'm much taller than you. My highest weight was 354, and I yeah. was, uh, and I'm, but I'm six foot seven. So, but I remember, I remember telling somebody, uh, what I'd eaten one time, and I remember saying something along the lines of like, I remember I, this is such a ridiculous story and completely not off topic, but I'm just, it's funny. I, I remember telling somebody that. I had eaten caramel. I bought caramel Cheerios and I thought they were going to be really good. And I ate them and I was all alone this day and I ate them and they weren't very caramely. And I'm like, what could I do to make these more caramely? And I was like, Rolos. So I like threw Rolos and, and someone was like, what? And I go, look, you don't get to be 354 pounds without making some very questionable food decisions. <laughs> you know, my big thing was uh, I love peanut butter M&Ms. And uh, when I, I had to drive back and forth across country a few times and, uh, I would really just primarily live off a party sized bag of peanut butter M&Ms and M&M's mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. uh, that was my life. So yeah. I mean, so there's enough water in Red Bull I figured. So, so yeah. that, you, you feel like your, <clears throat> your weight gain made you less attractive to her. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm. It did. Um, yeah. And then, and that couldn't have felt good. No, it didn't. You can, it's really hard. I don't know how it works for other people, but I can't really be confident in my sexuality and look as I call my, as I called and probably still do call myself a uh, cow. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you can't look yourself in the mirror and say, man, my wife is lucky to have me when you weigh that much. So. Yeah. yeah. Now in this time frame, though, you're, so you, we were talking about having a faith crisis and you brought up the, the information with the young single adult. Bishop. Yeah. There was another thing, sorry. Um, my ex-wife was working as a nanny at mm-hmm. the time, and uh, I just set up my Stacy Facebook page and all that stuff. And um, my my um, my wife's boss uh, stumbled across that page. Mm-hmm. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, my wife's parents didn't know about it anything like that and uh one it's a it's a very weird story but um one of the bridal places i went to her um well one of the uh, one of the girls that helped me also worked for my wife my wife's boss as a nanny Hmm. and she accused me of ejaculating all over a dress wow yeah a completely baseless it was, and I feel like if I would have taken her to court for defamation of character, I would be a millionaire right now. But uh, yeah, um, that, and uh, when um, when her boss found out, she called my parent, uh, my not my parents, less my ex wife's parents, and uh, told them that my ex wife's parents told me to stay away from their daughters because I thought I was a predator and a whole bunch of things like that and i just thought okay these are well 
my wife's parents are good LDS people. And so I was like, this is how I would going to be treated as a trans person throughout the entire state of North Carolina. So I just decided I'm going to start easing back from church. If this is how church members are going to act, I don't really want anything to do with it. And that also did not help my marriage with my ex-wife because she was trying and striving to get her temple recommend back and living worthy and all that stuff. And I was just being a stick in the mud. Mm. So it's, it's interesting how that works. I, I speak to a lot of people now I didn't ask for this, but I, I tend to be someone that people reach out to when they're struggling with their faith or they're struggling in their marriages. And, uh, and so I speak to a lot of different people about that. And I'm actually kind of grateful that they do because I feel like I have enough experience now that I can, I can help. Um, but that, that gratefulness varies day, varies day to day anyway. Um, and, uh, it's very interesting how when you're a member of the church um, activity in church, the effect that has on relationships. Um, I have found that when you have two people who are all in on the church, um, marriages tend to go a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and also when they're on the same page on pulling back things seem to go well i have had a, a number of people tell me that uh their marriages have been strengthened by that and you know who who's to say if that's true or not they they know um and uh, i'm i don't doubt that uh nor is that probably true in every case but but i find that the the at least anecdotally the big issues within marriages when it comes to this often are compounded when one is stepping away or struggling and the other one is not. It sounds like that's kind of where you were at. Yeah, no. Um, I I honestly think me and Les, my ex-wife, started uh, drifting away when I started wearing women's clothing more and more and more. Mm -hmm. um, that's when we really started drifting apart. Mm -hmm. And that started how long after you guys got married? Well, I started wearing it more consistently. It didn't start till I got out of the army. So I started, it really started happening a lot when I started going to college. Um, and this is in 2021? This is in 2020. This is um, the summer semester of 2020. Okay. And so you had been married for like almost two years. No, wait. Yeah, no, it's 2021. I apologize. Um, it was a summer semester of 2021 when I just decided I'm going to start going to school as a woman. Okay. So and you guys have been married then what? Almost three years at that point? Almost three years at that point. Yeah. Okay. Well, two and a half years. Two, yeah. And, and just to kind of flush this out and keep us on track, I want to ask, did, did you ever indicate to your soon to be ex that this is something that you would want to try to do? I no. I always told her that I would keep it locked away, of which I thought would be possible because I loved her enough to do so. And okay. Okay. I was wrong. <laughs> Nothing I love for her or anything like that. It was just because I needed to do it. I needed to have that experience. Sure. So okay, so you start doing this. Um 
as you're doing it, how did it feel for you? I mean, you've, you've been struggling with gender your whole life. So now you're getting an opportunity to live the way you want to live. How did that feel for you? Words can't describe it. All I'm going to say is incredible. It felt absolutely amazing. Um, indescribable. Um, I just, I was actually able to focus in school for the very first time in my entire life. I was able to socialize and fit in. Um, the professors there made me feel very comfortable. I was taking a uh, construction mathematics course and uh, the professors there were extremely nice. They had no problem calling me Stacy. They always called me she, her. Um, whenever we needed to split up and do boy girl activities, you know, we competed a lot of time, just sex is whatever I always put with the girls. It was always good. It felt amazing. Mm. It's like a dream come true. I don't know how else to describe it. Just being able to wear what you want to wear in public as small and insignificant as that sounds is rather profound. Well, that's something I think we often take for granted, right? I mean, if you're not somebody who struggles with this, yeah, if you're like, if you're a guy and you're wearing guy clothes and you get to pick what guy clothes you want to wear and nobody says anything about it, right? And same with women. And But if you're someone who deals with gender dysphoria, that's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. The very first time uh, a classmate held a door open for me or something like that, I was just like, all right, this is great, actually. I can really get behind this. And so um, now as this is going on, um, what is your wife thinking? She thought it was just a phase and that it would pass, I assume. She never mm -hmm. actually told me what was going on. But she, she didn't voice any necessarily opposition at that point? No. Okay. She actually never really voiced any opposition until we decided to separate. That was okay. So um, now, as you're, this is the beginning of your transition. You yeah. start wearing women's clothes. Yeah. How long into it you you started taking hormones? Right. I didn't start doing that till after my wife and I had separated. Okay. And tell me, you know, I know we're getting super personal here, but separation was that your idea her idea mutual idea um we were me i was meeting with a therapist very consistently and um it, we met with my therapist on our third wedding anniversary and uh we just kind of realized that we both have needs that the other couldn't fulfill. Mm. And as painful as that is, because aside from being in the army, I really don't like quitting. I never have. Um, and I felt like I was just quitting on our marriage. Like we made covenants with, we weren't sealed in the temple, but we still made covenants with God to sure. be with each other. And uh, I just felt like I was just, lying through my teeth is like, was I was just a liar for those covenants? Like what was going on? Mm -hmm. And so, um, who, so again, was it a, she said, Hey, you know, we're going to have to tie the, we're going to have to put a pin in this or you did or both. I, I told her if it's going to make her happy that she should start building a different, uh, she should uh, that's uh, she should like make another dating profile and just see what comes about and whatever um so she did and she started getting hits like crazy um 
and uh, yeah, um, then it wasn't too long after that. I think it was January of last year. She, uh, um, we, we separated, we started living in different rooms and uh, what really hit it home for me was um, when we, of which I feel stupid saying, but it was still very, a very sad moment for me. Um, when me and you know, me and my ex-wife first got married, one of the things that we would do is, you know, as we went to bed, we would sit down and watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. We would just watch two episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine every night and laugh. And then we'd fall asleep and whatever. We would cuddle. It was amazing. It was one of the happiest times of my life. And uh, there's like this dating app where and there's like an app that you can look up and you guys can both watch a TV show at the same time and make, make comments to each other. It's like you're sitting right next to each other. Um, what really was like the final pin for me was that she was starting to do those things with someone else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that really just crushed me. And, uh, at that time she went cause she was doing some, uh, she was doing something about donating blood or donating plasma to, um, a, uh, to an underprivileged child, not an underprivileged, just a child who needs, I think it was bone marrow. Or whatever, but anyway, uh, she went to Seattle, and we just had the we just had a huge argument um, over the phone. And uh, when she came back from Seattle, she went to live with her parents, and that's when we really separated. Uh, when she got back, I was like, "We," I said, "Hey, we can we can make this work. I could give up on Stacy. We can both try to make this work and build a relationship and uh, make a relationship stronger because of it." And she said, "No, I'm pretty sure I'm done." So, yeah. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, so now let's uh, start talking about taking hormones. And, and you you start taking them. How long were you on them? Five months. Okay. So I want to know, <clears throat> could you feel a difference when you started taking them? Not. At first, I noticed that my libido was gone. Um, I think that's pretty common though. Um, I also noticed that my temper, I don't have a raging temper except when I'm driving, but I've really worked on that. Um, but, uh, my temper was gone. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't have a temper anymore, which is great. Like at all. Um, but then I noticed physical changes too, like, um, tenderness in my breast area and, uh, things like that. My skin getting soft and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I, those made me so happy to see. I was just like, hey, back when I was in kindergarten, not kindergarten, back when I was in middle school and I wanted to go through women's puberty, well, I'm doing it now. I'm like, this is great. It's whatever. And uh, I was making plans. I was going to become a truck driver, make a lot of money, and uh, save money to pay for breast augmentation and gender reassignment surgery and go do those. And, uh, yeah, um, yeah, and that was my plan. That was my plan up until I, um, up and excuse me, up until I had a huge spiritual experience, and uh, that's what snapped me out of not snapped me out, but that's what made, that's why I stopped taking wow. the estrogen. Well, let me let me. We're going to talk about that spiritual experience in a second, but I want to just kind of briefly talk about you for this time. You're not going to church. Um. I was, I, I was for it towards the later ta- towards the later half. So I wasn't going to church probably 
I started taking them in, gosh, it might have been seven, six months. Anyway, I started taking them in February and I ended in September. Okay, but but I, even before you started transitioning, you weren't going to church. No, I wasn't. Um, and, I stopped going. I started coming back to the singles ward around the summertime okay. uh, this year. Okay. So, um, and this this uh, inactivity surrounded your gender dysphoria or other things, or was it multifaceted? Can you repeat the question? Sure. So your your reasoning for leaving the church, did it center around your gender dysphoria and the church's policies towards that? Or was it, it something else? Or was it multifaceted? Uh, it was surrounded around the idea that the church wouldn't accept me. Surrounded around the idea that um, I couldn't find happiness in the church. And I was extremely happy living as a woman. Hmm. And... I mean, I was, it was hard, sure, but I was in an absolute blissful state. I was, I had never been happier. Hmm. And yeah. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And so as all this is going on, you're not going to church. And then you, what, what prompted you to start going back? I, uh, I went to trucking school in Dunn, North Carolina. And um, um, because it was a, it's about 75 miles from my house. I didn't want to drive back and forth every day. So I stayed in a hotel and, uh, I got so bored sitting in that hotel. I decided to go to a family home evening activity, um, for the Y with the YSA. And, uh, did you go as Sonny or did you go as uh, Stacy? I had to wear a sports bra at the time, but yeah, I went as Sonny because yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, how was it going to the family home evening? It was nice. Um, there were a few people there that I was really happy to see that I hadn't seen in a long time. Um, it really changed, though, because Les and I, my ex-wife and I, were there and got married about three years before that. Um, so, yeah, there was a few friends I came back to, but it was it was all right. Um, it was about what you expect from every other family home evening activity in a YSA or in Going across the entire United States. Sure. Okay. So, um, and then what about that experience prompted you to kind of start reactivating? I started making friends with people there. Um, so, so more of a social activation. Yeah. I started making friends and things like that. During this process of inactivity and this process of going through the um, – the transition process, did you ever lose your testimony of the savior and the church? <coughs> I started seriously doubting it. Mm -hmm. um, I started believing as Stephen, Haw as Stephen Hawking did. And that is, you know, after you die, there's nothing. So just make up a live while you can. Um, so I guess in a way I was denying the Christ. Um, but it was always in the back of my head experiences I had on my mission and things like that. So isn't it interesting? I, I just want to say, um, I hear this a lot from people who are going through a faith crisis and what I hear from them when I ask them, I'm like, well, what's keeping you coming? And the answer is always, 
I had this, I can't deny the spiritual experiences I've had. Yeah. And it emphasizes to me how important it is to continue to have those spiritual experiences. I just, I just had a podcast, um, a couple podcasts ago with a former member of the church who now lives a polyamorous lifestyle and no longer mm-hmm. goes to church. And, um, that was something that we had talked about was that you i have never found anywhere where i have been able to replicate some of the spirit the strong spiritual experiences i've had other than in the church yeah and um those are the things that keep me going and those are the things why i think it when when people talk about when you hear people in general conference or I just had a state conference today and listened to it there and talking about how living in a way where you can feel the spirit, how important it is because man, those experiences can, I have had spiritual experiences that have literally saved me from some of the darkest moments in my life. Yeah. And um, had I not had those, I don't know where I would be, you know, as far as just where I am, I mean, in the depths of sorrow. I mean, my, I've had a number of very traumatic experiences in my life. A lot of them, a lot of them in the last few years. And, and uh, in those, those are the moments when I feel that spiritual experience. And if I didn't have the church and the faith that I have, I don't know how I could have gotten through. I mean, I'm sure I would have at somehow, but I don't know if it would have come out as well. That makes sense. It does. And uh, so, um, but, uh, but it's interesting how you say that you said, even though you, you started to doubt, you started to question, I know you, you told me off offline that you were, you know, kind of toying with the idea of atheism, which is what you just kind of said with the yeah. Stephen Hawkins thing, but you couldn't deny those experiences. Yeah, no. And uh, you can rationalize it all you want with like saying your brain was just releasing dopamine, just believe what it wants to believe, whatever. Um, but part of my reactivation was, you know, I don't know how to say this, but I really don't want to be LDS because right now it's either me being LDS or me transitioning and they can't coincide. Mm. Um, And even if I did want to try to make them and force them to coincide, I couldn't because of the spiritual experience I had. Um, When I've been going to church for a while, Um, I had a really good friend who was helping me, telling me to go to church, always asking me, are we going to see you today? Things like that. She was just being a good person. She just got her mission called the Serban, the Germany Berlin mission. And uh, she's just being a really kind and loving friend. And um, I started going to Institute. I started um, listening to church music again and settled truths that I had chose to forget or uh, for, uh, that I chose to forgot, forget, chose to forget were coming back. And um, like what? 
different verses like um second nephi chapter 1 verse 15 of which is i have beheld my redeemer i have beheld his glory and i'm encircled about eternally in the arms of no excuse me the lord hath redeemed my soul from hell i have beheld his glory and i'm encircled about eternally in the arms of his love um verses like that experiences i had on my mission um talks that I had listened to that I held so dear to my heart um, started coming back to me. And one morning I got up to take my estrogen like it was like, like I was doing every morning. It wasn't that big of a deal. And um, I was happy. I was on cloud nine. You know, the spirit was coming back. I just, I felt like I had that new member vibe glow, you know, someone who's really accepted the gospel and is like super Jesus happy and everything and uh i just felt so good and uh i went to take the estrogen and i put it in my mouth and the moment the estrogen touched my tongue the spirit left it was just like i was sitting there with, I, with the testosterone blocker estrogen on my tongue and the spirit was just gone it sucked it sucked for so many reasons that I couldn't, it was God's way of telling me the way how I took it. And I really don't see you can see it another way is that I, that he loves me regardless, but I can't continue to progress and continue to build upon the joy that I already have. And I'm feeling and the knowledge that I'm gaining again and continue to do this. I, as you just can't, I can't do it. And you know, the, the church says differently that if they're prescribed to you, you can take them and everything like that. But I, I can't do it. It's not because of what the church says or anything like that. It's because of the own experience, my own personal spiritual experience that God does not want me to be doing this as much as what I want. Mm. And so, so it sounds like what you're saying, just so I can make this clear, you're saying for you, Sonny, God, you feel as though God is telling you, you should not be transitioning. That yeah. You're not making a comment on anybody else who is feeling the same way. You're just not saying your own personal revelation is that God does not want you to transition. Yeah. And you mentioned in that, that you, that like, it sucked. Yeah. Yeah. God telling you revelation sucks sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so how are you, how long has it been since you've come off of the estrogen? Oh, around four months. Okay. So you're almost off of it as long as you were on it. Yeah. Uh, let's just talk logistics. Um, change in feeling are you seeing any side effects from taking it not really um i had extremely minute breast growth and even if i got it even if i started working out every day i mean eventually the skin would be pulled tight from the muscles mm -hmm. underneath and you wouldn't notice them but mm -hmm. i do have a little bit of flab um mammary glands pardon me i do have some mammary gland growth um, other than that though, everything is back to normal. My libido is back to normal. My everything is back to normal. So, okay. Um, uh, 
how are you feeling spiritually right now? Spiritually, I'm very much drained. Um, because you know that one song in the church, I need thee every hour. Yeah. That's incredibly relevant for everyone, but for me particularly. Um, I have a playlist that I listen to every single day when I'm driving. It's just songs about Christ. And uh, if I don't listen to those songs, my gender dysphoria is crippling. Like I can barely get out of bed. I don't want to do anything when I get home other than just veg. I don't have energy to do anything, whatever. If I don't constantly do everything I can to invite the spirit, it's going to be impossible for me to not transition. This is very much dependent on me being close with heavenly father and constantly being reassured by the atonement. So interesting. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, someone's going to listen to this. I would say someone who is more of an LGBTQ advocate. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they're going to listen to this. And they're going to listen to your story and they're going to say, boy, Sonny, like you are denying your true self uh, for a church or a cult or whatever they want to say, right? What would be your response to that person who says you're denying your true self? Look at what the church has done to you. Look at what this, this stuff, what's your response to that? I understand where they're coming from. But two things. One, that verse that I shared earlier, I have beheld my Redeemer. Even though I haven't seen the face of Jehovah, I know he's been there for me through my darkest times. I'm not giving, I'm, I'm not denying myself because I want to. I'm denying myself because it's what God wants. Hmm. When Jesus Christ was suffering in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, father, if possible, remove this cup from me. And I say that every single day in prayer, father, please let me transition again. I was so happy, but he finishes that with saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And it is heavenly father's will that I'm doing. I'm not doing my own will. And there's a verse in the Book of Mormon that I knew as a missionary that I can't remember now, but it goes, this is a time for men to prepare to meet God. And I feel like when I finally do see my Savior's face and have denied myself this, this desire to transition, it's going to be so much more sweeter when I fall into his arms and cry. That's, that's powerful. You know, let me... Let me uh just share some thoughts with you and you, maybe you can help me understand this because I've thought about this quite a bit. I don't, I don't pr pretend to know the science behind transgenderism. Um, I know that there's not a, there's not a clear cut explanation for why someone feels gender dys dysphoria yet. I know there's some theories out there, but it's not super clear. But it seems to me that what we deal with in society is this idea of identity. 
and how someone identifies. And so if someone identifies as a woman, we are asked to respect that, mm-hmm. even if they're biologically a man and vice versa. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being respectful to somebody who wants to live their life in a certain way. Absolutely not. But there's also this idea that gender is not the only way someone identifies. Yeah, no, that's very true. So you are having two competing identities. It's, I do believe the scientific term is cognitive dissidence, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So you're having this, this dual identity that is, that is uh, right now adverse. And mm-hmm. one is you believe that you, you identify as a woman, but you also identify as a child of God and a disciple of Christ. And so you have to choose which one. And that is a tough deal. I can't imagine having to go through it. I mean, it sucks. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I wish I can say every single day I wake up and I say, I choose Christ. But there are some days that I definitely don't. Well, that's all of us, though. I mean, like, you know, here's the thing that, you know, I, I think a lot about the scripture and, and Doctrine and Covenants that says God cannot look upon sin in the least, least degree of allowance. And so what I mean by that, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, at all, that your gender dysphoria is sinful or that your transitioning was sinful. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, frankly, I don't know. Anyone that claims it doesn't yeah. know what you're talking about. I really don't know where this shakes out uh, as far as the church and the science and God's revealing to prophets what I I don't, I don't know. But what I do know is that I do know that God loves all of his children, including you, regardless of whether you are Stacy or Sonny. Yep. And the other thing I also know is that, um, uh, you know, the identity of being a child of God is powerful and it can be as powerful as an identity of gender. But back to the this this uh, idea of the you know you some days you choose Christ and some days you don't. That's a struggle that we are all having. Maybe yours yours is very different than mine or anybody else's and yours your struggle is definitely one that I would say like you said like you wouldn't wish it upon anybody. Um I hope the one day it's not a struggle. <laughs> You know, I hope that one day it's not a struggle for anybody, whatever that means. Um, but uh, so, so, so tell me here, uh, Sonny, um, what is your ideal future? That's hard for me right now because I want to say that I found a spouse who is completely understanding and accepting of Stacy. We can get sealed in the temple and we can make each other truly happy and have kids. Um, But that part of me that is transgender really wants to transition. And I pray that I can continue to choose Christ, but it's, extremely overwhelming it seems daunting and impossible to make it through this entire lifetime 
and continue to choose Christ the entire time. And I know what you mean, but I'm saying like, I, I hear what you said, but what I'm saying is choosing Christ as in not taking estrogen, not transitioning. In fact, um, I recently had, oh, not recently, it was a couple months ago, in order to get my temple recommend, I had to donate all my women's clothing. And uh, yeah. What? Wait, okay, hold on. <laughs> Sorry. Why? Why? I don't know. He never gave me his, uh, my bishop never gave me the exclamation on it. But if I was, if he wanted me, uh, his words were to prepare to go to the temple, I need to get rid of all of it. Hold on a second. Okay. Do you have a temple recommend now? I do. Okay. So you can answer every single one of the temple recommend questions accurately Yep. and be worthy of the temple. Yeah. What does it matter whether you have women's clothing in your closet or not? I don't know. I think it was just to get rid of the temptation. Um, I, again, I, I don't know what his logic was, but that was one of his requirements and also one of the stake president's requirements to, for me to get my temple recommend. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it was about, it was probably about $1,500 worth of clothes. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? Like I, I don't, your bishop and your stake president, if you believe in the church, they have the keys and the inspiration to tell you what you need to do. And perhaps maybe, I don't know how the interview went. Perhaps you had suggested that you're tempted often to put them on and they said, okay, donate them. That'll help or something. I don't know. And I don't need to hear all of it because, you know, that's whatever happens in your interviews are very private, but yeah. I often, this is one of my struggles, quite frankly, um, is, as I said before, I know that these guys, that these bishops and stake presidents often make mistakes. And I wonder if those, sometimes I question whether what they do that are off book like that, whether that is an inspiration from God or whether that is them coming up with something that didn't necessarily come from inspiration. I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, that's a digression. So do you, so this sounds like something that's a struggle, that's going to be a struggle for you for life. Yeah. I don't see a way around it. I'm always going to, yeah, I'm always going to want to transition. Okay. So there's, I want you to think about this. There's going to be, I, I hope two kinds of people that listen to this. There's going to be somebody out there who has a child, whether they know it or don't know it, that is struggling with the same issues that you're dealing with in identifying as transgender, but also identifying as a child of God and a member of our church. Um, and then there's another group, and that is somebody who currently is dealing with those things and may or may not have told anybody. What would be your message to them? To the person who is listening to this, who is struggling themselves, you're going to hear all the time at state conference and general conference and probably sacrament meeting and every testimony meeting, how much Heavenly Father loves you. And I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it doesn't feel like it at all. 
my own personal experience, I felt like I was a freak of nature my entire life. That's why Christianity is based on a personal relationship with Christ. It's not based on off of what your bishop has to say. It's not based off of what what your stake president has to say, what Elder Holland has to say. It's not based on any of that. It's strictly based on relationship with Christ. If you're listening to this, and I hope you are, don't give up hope. Just don't. The light of Christ starts with hope. Hope leads to faith. Faith leads to actions. Elder Holland quoted someone else who said, the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. So please make a fir- please make this step to choose Christ. Because there's nothing more beautiful in life to be a disciple of Christ. And I guess to the parent of an LGBTQ, LGBTQ youth, first and foremost, you did not fail as a parent. I've heard that time and time again that they've failed somehow, some way, some why. I've heard of some parents going into credible shocks and their health going downhill because their child came out as gay. The very first time your parent, your child comes out to you, it's going to be a very, very crucial moment. It was for me. It's going to set a tone for how much they can trust you for the rest of their life. If you are, and I say this sarcastically, and I think the word is facetiously, if you're wanting to get rid of your relationship with your child, by all means, mock them. If you want to get rid of your kid and your grandkid and everything like that, and ruin your relationship for years to come mock them. But if you want to stay close to your kid, look to Christ's example in John chapter 8. You go up to them and give them a hug and say, I'm going to be with you no matter what. Sonny, you're a pretty amazing person. Appreciate that, Brother Edlow. You know, it's a... Uh, you know, you have, you have, um, enlightened me. But a lot of things. I'm really grateful for you. Um, for being honest and for telling us how the atonement can affect anybody's life. I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, Sometimes I think my life is really hard. But I can't imagine dealing with some of the issues that you've dealt with in your life and to deal with those things and then just say what you just said. That is, there is a level of spirituality 
and a level of um, Christ-like love in you that I've seen in few people. And so um, I'm proud of you. Keep, keep fighting the good fight. I can tell you going through a divorce ain't great. <laughs> so whether you love the person or not, or whether you're the one who asked or, or not, it's, it is not great. And, uh, you know, uh, faith crisis is a struggle. So I know you're still fighting, but keep fighting. And, uh, I can tell you that if you ever get in that place again, where you're gonna, you know, you're gonna try to, you know, try to end things, you know, I'm a, I'm a phone call away. Okay. You know, I've known you for virtually your whole life. And I want to see that continue to go because I want to see where the story of Sonny Smith ends. I don't want it. I don't want it to end in a car, you know, or, or, you know, jumping off a cliff. I want it to end however you want it to end. Okay. And so uh, this, I think is a, this has been my longest podcast and it's been my most informative three hours and 20 minutes and counting. <laughs> I actually, no, I actually said I, I was telling somebody that you were coming on and I was like, it's probably going to be a long one. They're like, you have a lot to go through. And I'm like, yes. And we're both incredibly long winded. So this one's going to go. I remember your, I remember your homecoming talk. <laughs> was there was a certain series who spoke before me. It took 30 minutes. And I apologize. <laughs> No, I don't know why. No, I remember that. I remember your homecoming talk. And so, yeah, I said, I said, I was like, this one's going to be a long one. And, but I'm glad because I wanted to get through it and I wanted to get, I wanted to get through your story and, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to share it as you see it. Um, so this is the place where I'm supposed to tell everybody to subscribe. Um, you know, please do. Um, and, you know, I hope that everybody who listened to this learned a little something. And, uh, and we'll start showing that compassion that you talked about because there's those kids, those little Sonny Smiths are everywhere and you don't know who they are. And it could be one thing that you say that could change the course of their lives. So be kind. Anyway, thanks for listening and we'll, uh, we'll see you again soon.